One semester of law school. One semester of criminal justice. Two experts. I'm Kristen Caruso. I'm Brandi Egan. Let's go to court. On this episode, I'll be talking about War Machine. And I'll be talking about a family annihilator. This episode's gonna be What's War Machine? You don't know this story? No. You know this story. What's War Machine? The fighter War Machine? No. You don't know this story? Christy Mack, the porn star? No. Brandy, hold on to your hat. I can't believe you don't know this one. Oh, you're mm, 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 mm. you're in for a terrible treat. Oh, excellent. Yeah, and I'm guessing I'm in for a terrible treat. You sure are. <laughs> it's a family annihilator. Yeah, so. yeah, your specialty. <sighs> Kristen. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, I know what you're about I to do. You're you about to apology. kiss my ring. Kiss I my ring. Oh, you an apology. <laughs> uh-huh. The world, mm-hmm. it seems, has waited. Mm-hmm. And you're correct. Nepotism is alive and well in this world. Yeah. And I'm sorry. I've never been more wrong except maybe that Florida thing. But uh-huh. <laughs> Brandy, how's it feel to be it's wrong? Not, it's not you taking it well? You... Uh, no, I hate it. Yeah. Oh, well. <laughs> My sincerest apologies. Uh-huh. uh-huh. <laughs> you know, I'll forgive, but I won't forget, Brandy. That's the thing. <laughs> Everyone, please write down this moment where Brandy pretended nepotism didn't exist. And I had to school her. <laughs> oh, Brandy. Gosh, it brings me no pleasure. Ooh. You know? Mm. I bet. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, just a reminder, everyone. This is our last regular episode before we go on our winter Everybody, I was doing really sexy dances. I don't know about that, but don't worry. If you want more of us, if you miss us, don't know about that. Then how do you explain your giant lady boner? (laughs) Hmm? Hmm? You didn't think I'd call you out, did you? I didn't. I I didn't think you could see my lady boner from over there. (laughs) Anyway, um, if you are going to miss us while we're on break, please. Check out our Patreon. We will be continuing to put out bonus episodes over there, both in December and January, the new year. And then we'll be back with regular content again in February. Yeah. 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 We both have new faces. (laughs) What if he did? What if every time we came back with facelifts? Okay, I always think about like how awkward it would be if like we got work done, but we wouldn't admit it we to each other. We weren't acknowledging it at all. Yeah, so we're just like, hey, you look really You look so well frozen. rested. Like you, like, you really got some rest on our break. And I'm like, rest, more like restolin. What's it? restolin? It's like fillers. Oh. The really good joke. No. Oh. Ha! Anyway, check out our Patreon. Uh, for as little as $5, you can get in on the action for the bonus episodes. You get in the Discord where we chitty chat the day away. And then we have all the way up to the $10 level. That's the Bob Moss level. And at that level, you get 10% off merch. You get episodes a day early. You get them ad-free. And you Ooh. get all the stuff from the lower levels. That's right. That's right. And um, and that's the end of this spiel. Yeah, because I don't know if we're going to have new merch. Um, Sometime. Soon. Someday. We're working on it. Yeah. Will it be some merch. Will it be here in time for the holidays? Check back. Probably not. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> Maybe after the, it, just in time for the new year. I don't know. That's not what people, <laughs> you know how 
January 15th, you want a new sweatshirt? Well, yeah. you know, <laughs> stay tuned. We got you covered. <laughs> All right. Kick this thing off. All right. Let's talk about a family annihilator. This is a family annihilator that I had never heard of. One okay. of my clients told me about this. So shout out to my client, Kennedy, mm-hmm. for this case recommendation. And I think a lot of people will not have heard of this because there's, like, no coverage on it anywhere. Did Kennedy make it up? No, it's real because I found news articles. And I found one really good, like, all-inclusive source. It was a podcast called This is Monsters. Why are you shaking your head? We are the only podcast. <laughs> we are most certainly not. And I really enjoyed this podcast. It was a very straightforward, uh-huh. no frills, just the facts oh, presentation. They don't go on a bunch of tangents. There were zero tangents. Mm. It was a very concise episode. Interesting. <laughs> Came in in about 34 minutes. Interesting <laughs> approach to podcasting. <laughs> not really our style. <laughs> so a lot of it comes from that episode of that podcast. Okay. Bonaparte, Iowa is a small town along the Des Moines River in southeast Iowa. Boasting a population of 359 as of the 2020 census, Bonaparte was first settled in 1836 by William Meek, and he christened it Meek's Mill. Oh. But my dude, Billy Meek, had a major boner for Napoleon Bonaparte. Brandy, please keep it classy, okay? That's all I ask. So in 1841, he renamed the town Bonaparte. Wait. (laughs) He He renamed his own town after someone else. Did he decide to become humble all of a sudden? (laughs) I don't know. And he also made plans for another town across the river and dubbed it Napoleon. Why do you like Napoleon so much? I don't know. Okay. For whatever reason, Napoleon never developed, but Bonaparte, Iowa flourished. It survived the Great Flood of 1851. Did it really? I mean, if there are only 350 people. There's only 359 people people there, so it's been the the, the, population there is kind of on a a steep decline as well. So there was no boom, but it did survive the Great Flood, which practically wiped out Des Moines. Hmm. And it was finally incorporated in 1899. Over the years, Bonaparte became one of those small, sleepy towns where everybody knows everybody and people leave their doors unlocked and nothing bad ever happens. Mm. But all that changed with a 911 call on October 14th, 2006. It was 3.38 a.m. when 14-year-old Shayna Bentler called 911 from the landline of her family's home. She told the dispatcher that her mother had told her to call. She said, my brother's going to do something. I don't know what. My mom's yelling at him saying, Sean, don't. In the background of the 911 call, Shayna's mother, Sandra Bentler, could be heard screaming and saying, please don't. Please, Sean, don't. Then a gunshot rang out. Hmm. Seconds later, the dispatcher could hear a creaking sound like a door being opened And then Shayna screamed, Sean, no! And the line went dead. The dispatcher attempted to return the call, but it went unanswered. 
At nearly the exact time the first call disconnected, a second call came into the 911 dispatch center. When the dispatcher answered it, there was no one on the line, just a clicking sound. The dispatcher ended the call and attempted to place a return call, but that call went to the voicemail of Shelby Bentler's cell phone. Shelby was Shana's 15-year-old sister. Again, the dispatcher attempted to return the disconnected call from the Bentler home, but again, it went unanswered, and police were dispatched to the home of Michael and Sandra Bentler, located at... <gasps> okay. Hang on. All right. 23894... Hawk Drive, mm -hmm. Bonaparte, Iowa. Oh, my. That's yeah. a nice house. Yes. Yeah, so this is... They've um, got a pool. Yeah, it's kind of like a hunting lodge kind of feel once you get inside. Mm-hmm. Six beds, three baths. Zillow listed as only being 1,600 square feet, but no, there's about, there's like 1,200 square feet of basement area that's finished that wasn't counted in the official square footage. So closer to 3,000 square feet. Oh, I love it. Yeah. It's a very nice house. And the Bentlers built this house for their family. Did they build it in the 80s? Yes, of course they did. Uh, no, I don't think so. Are you kidding me? This is 1980s fabulous. It's got 1980s written all over it. Hold no, on. I think it was built in early to mid-90s. Hold, please. Year built, 1987. Oh, Boom! Nice! Boom. I was thinking oh my gosh, I read somewhere that that's it That's so weird that you years. got something wrong again. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, <laughs> so very unique house, very much a lodge style, whatever. Okay, anyway, back to the story. Okay. Two deputies arrived at the Bentler home at 3.55 a.m. and found the house dark with no obvious signs that anything was amiss inside. I'm sorry. I just found a really cool place for 38 grand in Farmington, Iowa. <laughs> It looks like it's out of the 1800s. I will close this tab. Okay. I will right. hang on. Let me close it. I apologize. <laughs> I was trying to be sneaky. All right, go ahead. Go ahead. Anyway. So officers arrive at the scene. They arrive at the scene. The house is dark. There's no obvious signs that anything's going on there. So the deputies knocked on the front door. Of course, they got no answer. So they walked the perimeter of the house and they eventually made it to a sliding glass door off the main bedroom. They used their flashlights to look inside the dark room and saw the body of Michael Bentler on the floor. Hmm. They then made entry into the home through that sliding glass door and they checked Michael for a pulse but found none. He was dead from multiple gunshot wounds. Next, they made their way out of the bedroom and down the hall where they quickly came upon the body of Sandra Bentler. She was also dead from multiple gunshot wounds. At that point, the deputies called for backup and exited the home as they were unsure if the shooter was still inside. As they waited for backup, they secured the perimeter of the home and checked the cars in the driveway to make sure you know, no one was hiding in them. And when backup arrived, three deputies made their way back in the house to clear it and attempt to locate any more victims. The Bentler family was well-known in Bonaparte. Obviously, it's a tiny town, and they were a well-to-do family. They owned and operated a grain elevator and lumber company that served, like, the whole southeastern Iowa area. Okay. 
As such, the deputies knew that Michael and Sandra had four children, three of whom still lived in the home. The deputies moved methodically through the house and made their way to the upstairs bedrooms where they found 14-year-old Shayna sitting in her closet. The noise, the creaking on the door had been somebody opening the door and finding her hiding in her closet on the phone with 911. She was dead from a gunshot wound to the head. The phone she had used to place that 911 call was in pieces all around her. The shooter had fired a shot directly through the phone. Mm. Similarly, Shelby was found in her closet, dead from a gunshot wound to her head, and her cell phone lay on the floor next to her. As I mentioned already, the Bentler family was familiar to the deputies, and they knew that there was one more daughter who lived in the home. But they weren't familiar with the home's unique layout, and so they had trouble locating 17-year-old Sheena's bedroom. Finally, they made their way to the basement of the home, and they found this big open rec room area that had, like, all kinds of taxidermied animals on the walls and had this big gun safe, and the gun safe was open. But there was no bedroom down there. It was clear, though, and I don't really understand this, and I looked at the pictures and tried to figure this out, but it was clear to them from where they were standing in the basement that there was more basement, though, that they weren't able to access from the room that they were in. Mm -hmm. And so they walked back upstairs to the main floor and looked for another staircase. And they found it, and it took them down to a separate part of the basement, and that is where they found 17-year-old Sheena's bedroom. I mean, that's no mystery, right? You go down to a basement and you're looking at it and it's like, well, this is much smaller than yeah. the floor plan of the house. Right. Yeah. Yeah. All right. All right. Yeah, all right. <laughs> so in the second portion of the basement, they found Sheena's bedroom and she had suffered the same fate as the rest of her family. She lay dead on her bed. In all, five members of the Bentler family had been shot and killed execution style inside mm. their home. The Iowa Department of Criminal Investigation, or DCI, was alerted and all kinds of various law enforcement descended on the Bentler house and a full investigation began. There was one big question on the investigator's mind. Where was Sean Bentler? Sean Bentler was Michael and Sandra's 22-year-old son, and he was kind of the black sheep of the family. He had worked for the family business for a time, but it hadn't been a good fit. So oh, you've, <laughs> got to be, you've got to be really, really bad at your job when yeah. even the nepotism isn't yeah, enough. Yeah, not enough. So he had, sorry, I totally just lost my place. Wait, I mean, okay, but their business was huge. It was like grains and lumber. They couldn't have found like so a. I think this was like a, you're not holding up your end of the deal. You're representing the family. And so he was like, fine, I don't want to represent the family anymore. And so oh. he left and moved an hour and 20 minutes away to Quincy, Illinois, to kind of, like, become his own person and not, you know, be representative of the Bentler family with everything he did. Sure. He had a hard time keeping a job, though, once he moved away. Uh, He worked for Lowe's for a while, and he worked as a car salesman at a couple— Couple? (laughs) At a couple of different dealerships, and he was actually pretty successful— At that, when he would bother to show up for work, Mm. he had actually just been fired from his most recent dealership job in August. 
Sean had been missing a lot of work, and when his manager had a sit-down with him about it, he explained that he was just going through a really hard time because his dad had died of a heart attack. Oh, but that didn't happen. (laughs) (laughs) No, it had not happened. He was just like, this whole story about how it was very sudden, and he was, you know, helping with his sisters and his mom and all this. Right. Well... What Sean didn't know was that his manager was familiar with the Bentler family business, and so he called the lumber yard oh, to express his condolences. Oh, shit. Oh, that's so bad. Only to find out that, yeah. He's very much alive. Uh-huh. And so then Sean was fired. <laughs> that's a bad lie, though. I mean, yeah, that seems like... it's really easy, easily verifiable. <laughs> yeah. Okay. In addition to having trouble keeping a job, Sean had two young daughters. I believe they were one and three. And it doesn't seem that he had much of a relationship with his children. And he had trouble keeping up on child support, you know, because he didn't, couldn't keep a job. Gotta have a job. Yeah. Exactly. That's tough. So just things weren't going real well for Sean. So anyway, DCI sent an alert to the Quincy police. So like that's like an hour and 20 minutes away, as I mentioned. And they said, you know, be on the lookout. Sean Bentler, please put him under surveillance. Something we believe he's a suspect in his family's murders. Like his whole family's dead. He's the only one that's not here. He was named in the 911 call. I've listened to Let's Go to Court. It's not a mystery. (laughs) And so they send that message off to the Quincy police. And in the meantime, back at the Bentler home... Two important discoveries had been made. First, Sean's cell phone had been located on a table. Well, shit. In the hallway of the Bentler house. Yeah. 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 Second, fresh tire tracks had been located on a dirt service road that exited the back way out of the Bentler property. It was this road that only someone with intimate knowledge of the property would have been able to locate and use. You're kidding. Yeah. (laughs) So it was becoming quite clear to investigators that Sean Bentler was their guy. Pretty, I thought I told you I don't like a mystery. It's too titillating. (laughs) They were like, we've got to talk to this guy. We have to find him. But Quincy, Illinois PD was on it. They set up surveillance outside of Sean's residence and watched and waited and Shortly after 10 a.m., Sean Bentler emerged from his house, hopped on his motorcycle, and took off. Police followed him and ran his plates, only to find out that Sean had a suspended license and a warrant for his arrest due to a failure to appear in court on a charge of possession of drug paraphernalia. So they pulled him over and they took Sean Bentler into custody. Initially, they just took him to the station, booked him on his, you know, warrant, took his clothes as evidence, and then they sat him down in an interrogation room. And an investigator just started out by kind of, you know, asking him, you know, what are you doing driving on a suspended license, Mm -hmm. you know? And he's like, oh, you know, I never do this. I never do it. I know my license is suspended. I had to get somewhere, blah, blah, blah. And then they, you know, just kind of feel him out a little bit. They ask him about his family and, you know, see what his reaction to that would be and... They wanted to know if he was close with his parents. What about his sisters? And Sean was pretty calm. He was talkative. He said that he was super close with his family. His dad you know, was really good about taking care of everyone in the family. And anytime he needed help or a little bit of money, he could ask his dad and it was no big deal. Then he went on to talk about his mom. He said he and his mom had a great relationship. 
In fact, the previous night she had surprised him and driven down to Quincy to see him. Sean told investigators that around 10.30 that night, his mom had shown up at his house for a visit. She did this pretty regularly. She'd just, you know, call 10.30 at night? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. 10.30 night, she drove an hour and 20 minutes away from her house. She did this all the time. And when she got there, super common. She didn't come in the house. He went out to her car and just sat in the car with her and, you know, just chit-chatted with her. They did this all the time. I'm so, sure. you know, <laughs> 10.30 at night, she pulls up to his house. He goes out, sits in the Tahoe. They chit-chat for about 15 minutes. He told her that he was having some money issues, and she agreed to give him some cash to get by until he found another job. And uh, that was that. Sean told investigators that she'd only stayed about 15, 20 minutes. She and drove an hour? hour and 20 minutes to his house, stayed about 15 minutes, and then drove an hour and 20 minutes back to her house. Did she take his cell phone? So... Is that um, how that happened or what? It, after she left, okay, mm-hmm. he gone inside. You know, he couldn't go anywhere because his license was suspended. Sure. So he'd just fallen asleep on the couch and he'd slept there until about 7 o'clock the next morning. And then Sean added a little something that investigators kind of raised their eyebrows at. He said that that next morning, so the current morning that we're at, He realized that he didn't have his cell phone. Mm. And so he figured he must have left it in his mom's car. In fact, you know what? The only reason he was on his motorcycle that day is that he was riding to his friend's workplace so that he could call his mom and get his phone back. Uh huh. So it was just unlucky that they caught him right then Mm -hmm. after he'd murdered his whole family. So at the end of this little story... That Sean has told. He added something to the effect of, yeah, I'm pretty sure I left my phone in my mom's car. And, you know, if she found it, she would have for sure taken it inside. So I am sure that my phone is inside my parents' house right now. Yeah. You know. Obviously. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Man, he's a real cool guy. Investigators were like, okay, now's the time to make the move here. Mm-hmm. And so they told Sean that someone had killed his family. They didn't go into detail. They didn't tell him exactly who was dead. But at that point, Sean placed his hands over his face and he began to cry. Or perhaps he began to pretend to cry because according to one detective who was present that day, when he lifted his head from his hands. No tears. There was not a single tear to be found. Yeah. 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 When investigators then asked Sean if he had any knowledge of who or why someone had done this to his family, he said no. And when asked if he was involved in any way, he again said no. Then, in what I personally like to imagine being a very dramatic moment where a member of the DCI, like, rips open the interrogation room door and walks in and slaps some papers down Mm -hmm. on the table. Mm -hmm. Is this person wearing suspenders? Mm -hmm. I was picturing a woman in a power suit. Okay. All right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm a little more old school sexist (laughs) than you are. (laughs) They then read to him from the transcript of the 911 call, 
where both his mother and his sister identified him as their attacker. Well, Brandy, what the... What? You've pulled a dateline on me. No, I said that at the very beginning. They said, Sean, no. Please, Sean, don't. Oh, shit. You know what? I was probably looking at that. (laughs) You probably were, you (laughs) asshole. I'm sorry. (laughs) I did not pull a dateline. (laughs) I let you in on it from the very beginning. (laughs) I apologize. Oh. these two ladies weren't liars because all women are liars. Uh, That's right. Yeah. (laughs) So at that point, Sean stopped cooperating with the investigation and he was taken back to his holding cell. Hmm. At some point after that initial interrogation, he called a friend of his to bail him out because at that point he was only being held on that failure to appear warrant. And so his bail was like a thousand dollars. And so he called his friends and he was like, hey, I need you to come bail me out because I think any time now my bond is going to be increased. Yeah, just a bit. Like to a million dollars. Uh-huh. But Please the tell friend, me his friend. Yeah, no, his the friend. friend was like, sorry, man, I can't help you. The friend had already heard about the murders and was mm-hmm. like, okay, everybody. Yeah. Yeah, everybody's already put this puzzle together. <laughs> It's one of those four-piece puzzles. Yes, exactly. And so it's like, sorry, sorry, man, I can't help you out. And Sean was right. On October 15th, 2006, Sean Bentler was officially charged in Iowa with five counts of murder. He waived his right to extradition and was transferred from Quincy, Illinois, to the Van Buren County Jail, where he would remain until trial. So now they've got to put, you know, a case. They've got pretty damn good evidence with the 911 call and yeah and his phone being found inside his parents house Uh but you know they want some more and so they go to work to put together the motive like he would get all the money so yeah do you want to know how much oh it's probably a lot right how much 2.8 million dollars it's not that much i was expecting more yeah okay yeah. Yeah. Two point eight million dollars. That would all be his if everybody else in his family was dead. Twas the perfect crime. No, it was not. It was a terrible crime. Yeah. So in the meantime, they take those clothes that they took from him when he was booked and they check them. Was it just like all gunshot over. residue? No, there was nothing on them okay. except for one sock. One sock what? had two drops of blood, two tiny drops of blood on them. And no, so they tested him for DNA, and it was Sandra's blood. Wait, he changed completely except for one sock? That's not the theory. Okay. <laughs> no, the theory is that his mom was the only one he got close enough to to get any kind of blood on him. He oh. shot them from... Kind of far away with a rifle. Okay. And so, and it was like a twenty-two caliber rifle, which I don't know if you know guns. That's a small gauge. Yeah, I'm pretty, I'm pretty knowledgeable yeah, exactly. about that. I don't fucking know what that means. That's but the, the one that the bullets come out of. That's exactly <laughs> right. So the ammunition was small enough, and he shot them from far enough away that he didn't get much of any blood on him. Well, that Just, does make a hell of a lot more sense than he gets completely naked except, except for, for one, one sock. sock. <laughs> no. So the again. only blood it seems he got on him was two droplets of blood. On one sock, but it was his mother's. Mm-hmm. It was his mother's blood. Like, that's great evidence. Yeah. 
And then they started talking about people who knew Sean, his roommates, his friends. And it turns out he told a lot of people that his dad was cutting him off. His dad was sick of his shit. He wasn't su- going to support him anymore if he wasn't doing anything with himself. He needed to get a job. He needed to get in school. He needed to do something. Yeah. And he had told multiple people that everything was going to be fine because he was going to be rich when his dad died. Oh, shit. And that was going to happen soon. He said that? Yeah. God damn. Yeah. Okay. Yep. But they had to figure out how Sean had been able to get to his parents' house. He didn't have a car. He lived with a roommate. And his room, so they talked to this roommate, and his roommate's like, Yeah, I did sometimes let Sean drive my car. And they're like, Okay, what about, you know, the early morning hours of October 14th? And so his roommate's like, Well, that night I got home at like 1 30 a.m. Mm hmm. And Sean was up playing video games. I went home, like, went to bed right away. I know when I parked my car that I had well over a quarter of a tank of gas in it. Yeah. I'm positive. The next morning when I got in my car to go to work, my car was parked in the exact same spot. Mm-hmm. But the gas tank was empty. Like, didn't think I was going to make it to the gas station empty. Wow. Mm-hmm. And he said, I know it's dumb, but I always leave my keys in my car. I leave it unlocked. This is Iowa. Oh, no, I guess they live in Illinois. Yeah. And whatever. This is a small town. You know, nothing bad happens here. That's the start of every one of our terrible stories. <laughs> it is. Nothing it is. ever happens yeah. here. Yeah. And so they had taken a mold of those tire tracks that they found on that service road at the Bentler Mm -hmm. property. And the tire tracks had been kind of odd. There had been two different tires present. And so they check out the roommate's car. And wouldn't you fucking know it, he had replaced one tire on his car and the other three were exactly the same. It matched perfectly. They were able to match the tire tread to his car say that it was the exact same brand of tire and they could even say it was made in the exact same factory as the tire that was on his car i don't think they have enough on this guy (laughs) (laughs) this is ridiculous it is ridiculous in the early part of the investigation they had also recovered the murder weapon one of the Bentler's own guns of had course. been found thrown into a ditch just off of their property, you know, not far off that service road where mm-hmm. maybe someone had driven, you know, an escape route so that they wouldn't be seen by the sheriffs who they for sure knew were on the way to the scene because they knew that 911 had been called. Yeah. They ran ballistics tests on that gun when they recovered it, and it was a perfect match. To the gun that had fired the bullets that had killed yeah. the five Bentlers. Yeah, it's a solid case. Mm-hmm. But you know what? What? Sean Bentler pled not guilty. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so excited for his defense. <laughs> so Sean Bentler pled not guilty and his trial began in May of 2007. He waived his right to a jury trial 
and opted for a bench trial before Judge Michael R. Mullins. My going for insanity? Theory, no, I think the theory on this is that you want somebody who's going to look at the case objectively and not emotionally. Mm-hmm. Because it's a really bad crime. Yeah. You're accused of murdering your parents and your teenage sisters. Mm-hmm. As they begged you not to. Yeah. Immediately, the defense filed two motions. They filed a motion to suppress the 911 call. Do what now? Uh-huh. Because... It's really okay. bad for their case. <laughs> well, yes. Yes. And also, because the initial 911 call came in from Shayna, who was relaying information that her mom was screaming to her. Oh, come on. That's hearsay uh-huh. evidence. <laughs> Give me a break. Yeah. The judge was like, yeah, no. Like, we can also hear her on the call. Yeah. So that said no. Nice try. Gonna allow the 911 call in. Yeah. So then the defense filed a motion to exclude the DNA evidence from Sean's clothes. You want to know why? Yes. <laughs> because those clothes were collected from him when he was brought in on a charge of failure to appear. Mm-hmm. That charge has nothing to do <laughs> with the murder charge. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. So that was that was an unlawful search and seizure is what that was oh his fourth amendment rights were violated okay okay so it seems that the prosecution was prepared for this and the investigators were prepared for this because Uh yes his clothes were collected when he was brought in on that initial booking they were not searched or processed until a search warrant was secured. Oh, yeah, they were. They, they were, were ready. <laughs> yes. And so the judge was like, nope, sorry. Man, I so, thought they had him on that I one. I know, yeah. And so the judge denied this DNA motion, mm-hmm. right, The to suppress the DNA. Sean Bentler at that point stood up in court and asked the judge to assign him new counsel. He said that if his attorney couldn't even defend his basic constitutional rights, then he was not fit to defend him. And the judge basically told him to, like, sit the fuck down. Yeah. He was like, you have no expectation of privacy after you've been booked. Your constitutional rights were not violated. They followed. Yeah. They followed procedure here. Yes, your clothes were taken. They were not searched or processed until a search warrant was Obtained, And I understand you're disappointed, but that doesn't mean your lawyer is bad. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. In their opening statement, the prosecution told the court basically their theory of what happened that night. They said there were five brutal slayings that took place at the Bentler house. The evidence will overwhelmingly prove that the person that pulled the trigger each and every time was the defendant, Sean Bentler. And then they played the 911 call. Mm. After playing the 911 call, they walked the judge through what they believed happened that day. Sean came to the house. He likely snuck in. Mm-hmm. No one knew he was there. He came in at 3 o'clock in the morning. He went directly to the basement, got a gun out of the gun safe, and they believe he went to Sheena's room in the basement first and killed her first and then went up to his parents' bedroom, and he knew that his father would be his toughest fight. And yeah. so he immediately 
hit him in the head with the butt of the gun, and then shot him twice. At this point, his mother woke up and got out of bed. He shot her through the jaw. (gasps) That's when she ran from the room and called for his sisters to call 911. Oh, my God. He followed her down the hall and shot and killed her in the hallway. And then he went into each of his remaining sisters' rooms and shot them in their closets where they were hiding. Oh, God, that's terrible. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. The prosecution told the judge that Sean Bentler would be the lone heir to his family's Mm -hmm. fortune, and he stood to gain $2.8 million as such. In contrast, Sean's defense attorney, who he was not a fan of, Mm -hmm. David Salen, said that the prosecution was wrong. Sean Bentler got along with his family well, and his mother gave him money that very night when she'd driven to his house. And, like, that DNA they're going to tell you about on his sock, that's because his mom did his laundry. And she bled on it? Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Come on. Mm Mm-hmm. And clearly he had no motive to kill his family. Well, yes, he did. Yeah, he had 2.8 million motives. Oh, that's spoken <laughs> like kind of a Nancy Grace, Brandy. <laughs> David Salen told the court he loved his family. And he was in shock when he learned of their deaths. Mm-hmm. This whole ordeal has been extremely rough on him. Not only is his family gone, but he is charged with their murders. Yeah, but that's because he murdered Because he her. murdered <laughs> So, So how bad are we going to feel? <laughs> he then told the judge that this is all the prosecution's fault, all the fault of the investigation from the beginning. I thought so. Mm-hmm. Tell me more. Mm-hmm. From the beginning, the police did not pursue a single other lead in this case. Well, the 911 call, I don't know if the defense attorney was looking at Zillow listings at the time, but the 911 call, the, his client was ID'd in yeah, that. Yeah, his client was ID'd in the 911 call. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I understand, though. If that defense attorney wants to go halvesies on that house, on that with house me, yeah. it looks like it's going to need some work, so I would appreciate a partner in this. He said it's obviously possible that the Bentlers could have mistaken an intruder for Sean no No. come on no 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 his mom was not his mom knows who he is yeah 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 their official defense on that is that Sandra wore glasses, and if she was awoken Mm -hmm. in the middle of the night she wouldn't have put her glasses on and that she just assumed it was Sean in the house that night. But Sean wasn't there. He was at home in Quincy, asleep on the couch. Well, it sounds like his roommate did it because, mm-hmm. you know, of those tires. So. No. That's devastating <laughs> that his roommate did this. Yeah. Also, the prosecution was able to present evidence that Sandra Bentler was at her home at 11 o'clock. That night, she got on the phone with her niece Mm 
on the landline. So she must have just hauled ass. <laughs> Back yeah, because from... she got to Sean's house at 1030, uh-huh. they stayed there for, for 15, 15 minutes, minutes. Yeah. and then made the hour and 20 minute drive home in 15 minutes. Unsafe, I say. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this um, is just stupid. Yeah, the defense said, it's clear from the moment of the receipt of that 911 call, and the evidence will show this, that the agents of the state of Iowa focused their entire case on Sean Bentler. And no one else. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they did. And rightfully so. (laughs) (laughs) So the prosecution put, you know, a medical examiner on the stand, a ballistics person on the stand. They talked about the DNA evidence. They had a bunch of Sean's friends take the stand. They talked about, yeah, how his dad had told him he was cutting him off. And Mm -hmm. now he talked about, you know... Gosh, if only I get my hands on my family's money, all my problems would be over. They had a friend get on the stand and talk about how he was present with Sean when he went to his family's house one time and took items from the family safe, jewelry of his mother, a bag of rare coins, and went with him and pawned them. Oh, man. So this whole story about how, oh, anytime he needed money, everything was great. The family was more than willing to give him anything. Really, why is he fucking stealing from them then? Mm -hmm. Obviously, the 911 call was the prosecution's best evidence. I feel like they could have gone up there, played that, and been like, Mm. goodbye. (laughs) Everyone, Brandy just pretended to drop a mic. Yeah. And the sound she made for it was, (laughs) (laughs) that's. Yeah, that's what this noise a mic drop makes. Uh-huh. Yeah, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> the prosecution's best witness, though, was the mother of one of Sean's daughters. So his one-year-old daughter, oh gosh, he was in kind of an on-again, off-again relationship with her mother. They had only been together a short time when she became pregnant. She mm-hmm. broke up with Sean, according to her testimony, when she was about two months pregnant. And he had had no involvement in her pregnancy, no Mm -hmm. involvement in the early months of their daughter's life. And just recently, he had come back around and been like, I want to be a part of her life. And they had tried dating, but it wasn't going real great. And she was always kind of, you know, getting on him to pay child support. (laughs) What a bitch. (laughs) (laughs) And so one week prior to the murder of the entire Bentler family, mm-hmm. Sean had told her, don't worry about anything. I'm going to have plenty of money soon. Mm-hmm. And specifically mentioned something about his parents dying. Oh. Yeah. My God. Yeah. Dude. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So then it was the defense's turn to put up their case, and they said that Sean Bentler didn't have motive, means, or opportunity to kill his family. He didn't have a gun. I mean, he did know where the whole family kept their guns, and he knew how to get to the gun safe, and he knew how to get in the house. And he did have the opportunity, and he did have the motive. Okay, so they put Travis Holder, which is Sean Bentler's roommate, on the stand. The defense did this, okay? Okay. 
they thought that this was going to outline why absolutely Sean could not have done this. So they put him on the stand and How? he talks about his car. And they're like, okay, what time did you get home? And he's like, 1.30 a.m. And I went directly to bed. And they're like, okay, and what time did you wake up the next morning? And he's like, 7 a.m. And they're like, was Sean there? And he's like, yes. And so the defense was like, oh, he totally couldn't have done it. Okay, but that timeline's terrible because if he had, I mean, he could have hung around a while before he left. Yeah, he totally could have done it. Yeah. Even driving exactly the speed limit, he would have had no problem making it in that window. Hmm. It was a really bad move by the defense. (laughs) But not quite as bad as their next oh, no. move, which was when Sean Bentler took the stand in his own defense. No. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Here we go. I am ready. Yep. So he took the stand and the defense started out, you know, real strong, real emotional. Mm-hmm. And they, you know. Tell us all about how much you mm-hmm. loved your family. Yep. Yep. Weren't you there when each of your sisters were born? Tell us about how you remember holding them in the hospital. They're just little tiny babies. And he talked about, yeah, how he remembered holding his little tiny baby sisters. And then he talked about how he'd always had this great bond with his mother, a bond that only intensified after he became a parent himself talked about how happy his mom was to become a grandmother. And then he spoke proudly about his father. He said, first and foremost, he was a provider for everybody. He put everybody else's needs first. No matter what he did, he was the best at it. And he went on to say that, you know, it was never a problem. If he needed help, if he needed money, his dad was always happy to do it. Always. He said, I, I didn't ask a lot, but when I had to, my dad would take care of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So why'd you tell all your friends that he was cutting you off? Yeah, exactly. And then he went on to talk about his love of his three sisters, and he described them in great detail. Sheena was a tomboy. She liked hunting. Shelby was a girly girl, and she loved to cook. And Shayna was smart. She was so smart. Sean's testimony came off very just straightforward, matter-of-fact, unemotional. And on cross-examination, the prosecution, like, lit into him. They were like, isn't it true that you stole your mother's jewelry and pawned it? And he was like, yeah, I did. Mm -hmm. And they're like, what about all these people who got up here on the stand today and talked about how you were talking about how your dad was cutting you off? What about that? He's like, I don't know where they're getting that information. I've never said that. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And the prosecution pressed him about how his mother identified him, how his sister identified him on the 911 call. And he told the story about how his mom wore glasses and she must have just not had her glasses on and must have misidentified him. And so the prosecutor's like, okay, what about your sister? Mm-hmm. She wore glasses? he had to be like, no. I'm like, so your sister just misidentified someone as you as well? And he's like, I don't, I don't really know. Yeah, it was not mm-hmm. good. No. It was not good. 
The trial lasted a week. Yeah. And then the judge spent a few days mulling over the verdict. Really? So here, this is interesting. I, I thought that was odd, too, because I was like, really? Like, it's just out there. Like, isn't it pretty clear? The state of Iowa on a bench trial requires that the judge deliver a full written verdict at the time. They have to submit the full verdict and the reasoning at the time that they announce the verdict. And so that's okay. why they wait the few days, typically. Yeah. But... It was really hard for the remaining Bentler family because, like, Michael and Sandra both had a bunch of siblings. And so, like, this was just terrible for them. They lost their sisters. They lost their brother. They lost their nieces at the hands of their nephew. Yeah. And so I read an article that was just, like, the family, just, like, the waiting for that verdict to come in was just horrible. Mm Mm-hmm. But finally, the judge announced his verdict, and he found Sean Bentler guilty. No. Of course. During Sean's sentencing, a bunch of people delivered victim impact statements. Julie Bentler, who was Michael Bentler's sister, said, I will never understand how you could look each of them in their eyes and do this. Your mother begging you, Sean, don't. And you pulling the trigger and killing her anyway. I'm not sure God will ever forgive you for that. Greg Bentler, who's Mike Bentler's brother, said, They built a successful business. And that, sadly, ultimately got him and his lovely wife and children killed by his own son's greed. Hmm. Chris Mendez, who's Sandra Bentler's sister, said, I hate that when I want to talk to my sister, I have to go to a cemetery. Mm. Lisa Simmons, who was another one of Mike Bentler's sisters, said, I think you will be tormented for the rest of your life on earth and what lies ahead of you. I'd like to believe people pay dearly for their sins and you are treated in life as you treat others. So, Sean, God help you. You'll need it. Woof. Woo. The judge sentenced Sean Bentler to four life sentences to run concurrently and one life sentence to run consecutively. So he have to serve two back-to-back mm-hmm. life sentences. He said that he couldn't speculate on how horrible the murders of his father and his sisters had been, but he could hear the murder of Sean's mother. Yeah. And he knew it had been particularly heinous. And so that's why he determined her life sentence should run consecutively to the other life sentences. Mm. Sean Bentler has appealed his conviction on the same grounds that he tried to get the DNA evidence thrown out at the beginning. So okay. he appealed saying that his clothes were obtained in an unlawful search and seizure and an appellate court ruled on that and said yeah no yeah bye bye and so sean bentler remains in prison and that is the story of a family annihilator lord almighty so my client kennedy who told me about that her cousins i believe live in bonaparte Oh, shit. Yes. That's how she knew about this case. When she was just there for, like, some family get-together. They they call it Thanksgiving. It wasn't Thanksgiving (laughs) because I saw her before Thanksgiving. They told her about this case, and then she got her hair done, and she's like, oh, my gosh, I have this case I have to tell you about. (laughs) 
Well, I wish what I could. What an idiot. Yeah, I mean, so senseless. Yeah. Okay, because he was convicted mm-hmm. of the murders, his two daughters split the estate. Oh, okay. Yeah. I don't know that a one-year-old's going to spend that money very wisely. <laughs> okay. Well, it was <laughs> – it has to go into a trust. But it's funny that you say that because when – Because it's really funny. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> so when the mother of one of the daughters was on the stand, that's mm-hmm. what the defense tried to say. Like, you stand to gain a lot from this if Sean uh, Bedler is convicted, don't you? Well, yeah, I guess so, but it doesn't mean that I (laughs) did anything (laughs) or that I'm giving you false information. Exactly. Yeah. That's the way the cookie crumbled, my dude. (laughs) That's right. All right. Well, that was horrible. As per use. Per use. All right. Tell us about an MMA fighter and a porn star. Is that what you said? Yeah. Do you really not know this I don't, and it seems right up my alley. It really does. (laughs) Okay, shout outs right off the bat. Um, thank you, Norman, for recommending Caruso? this case. Norman Caruso, hey! Yes, <laughs> he recommended this to me. But also, I have so many Normans in my life. I yeah, I was going to gonna say, what are you friends with people at a retirement village? I mean, how do you know another Norman? Um, also, holding dim ankles in the Discord and Jessica in the Discord also suggested this case a long ass time ago. Okay. So, you know, thank you to yeah. all. Let's see. So Norman recommended this to me after he watched a video on YouTube called The Case of John Copenhaver. And the YouTube channel is JCS Criminal Psychology. Okay. So I watched that. Also read a story on ESPN. I do not love the title. The Tragic Love Story of Christy Mack and MMA Fighter War Machine. I don't like when it's called a love, a love story. story. Anyway, it's an abusive relationship. Yeah. <laughs> But a lot of good information came from that, and that was written by Jane McManus. Also, Rolling Stone, New York Daily News, Las Vegas Sun, you know. Uh-huh. All the, yeah, all, all the all hits. The, yeah. Okay. Brandy, I have a terrifying true story for you. On November 30th, 1981, a piece of shit was born. Oh, God. And it came to life. <laughs> Like Mr. Hanky the Christmas Pooh? That's exactly right. (laughs) Only we wish this guy just sang some songs. His name was John Copenhaver, but he preferred to go by the very cool nickname War Machine. Mm. Mm -hmm. At one point, he got his name legally changed to War Machine. He did? Yeah. We have to call him Mr. Machine? So do you get to call him War? Or do you... I am calling him John because that's ridiculous. Okay. All right. And I'm not going to keep track of like, because, you know, here's the funny thing about when you do terrible shit, so all of a sudden you're like, yeah, I know my name's legally War Machine, but you could call me John. <laughs> yeah. hey, uh-huh. hey, jury, I'm John now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. yeah, because when you're on trial for murder, mm-hmm. it probably doesn't sound great when your name is War Machine. That's just um, a little-known fact (laughs) that you learned today on this podcast. Brandy, I know you're a huge UFC fan, so John needs no introduction. (laughs) Uh, Just, you know, for the listeners, though, do you (laughs) have any information? All right. (laughs) For the uninitiated, let's talk about his background. John was born in 
Oh, gosh. How do you say this? Simi Valley? Don't ask me how I to know. say stuff. We both got Reuters wrong. Whoops. <laughs> anyway, he was born in California, and his dad was a police officer. Simi Valley. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> I'm probably wrong. <laughs> See me after class no. if you're wrong. <laughs> okay, anyway. Oh, the jokes only get better from here, folks. Not true. <laughs> <laughs> His dad was a police officer and his mom was a nurse. And John had a rough upbringing. His mom had a drug addiction. And when he was just 13 years old, John's dad died in front of him from a heart attack. Okay. Yeah. So he had a traumatic childhood, but it seemed like he might turn it around. He got into the Citadel, which oh. is a military college yeah. that my friend Erica's husband attended. And that's a fact that I think you should all know. <laughs> But unlike Erica's husband, uh, John got kicked out of oh, the Citadel. Okay. Uh, it seemed he had behavioral problems. He was always getting into fights. In fact, he got into so many fights that I like to think of him as the ultimate fighter. And mm-hmm. he must have felt the same way. Because, because he went into the UFC. Because <laughs> he auditioned for the hit reality show, the ultimate fighter. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Okay. You ever seen this program? No, I can't say that I have. Can't say that I have either, although I did watch some clips on YouTube. Man, uh-huh. it was really something. <laughs> uh, the show obviously debuted on Spike TV. Obviously. 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 <laughs> and in it, a bunch of beefy dudes competed for a UFC contract. As I'm sure you already know, John appeared on season six. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I was... You know, racking my brain. Uh-huh, you're so like so many seasons. There are a lot of seasons of the show. Fighter, the ultimate Excuse fighter. Me, I'm sorry. My God. <laughs> so he was this very handsome guy who could turn on the charm when he wanted to. He had a great smile, and he also had cauliflower ear, which is just like a regular ear, but healthier for you. Oh, no, it's and, really hard to do a haircut around. Really? Yeah. Oh, are they super sensitive? They're sensitive, and they're super hard. They don't move. Hmm. How many cauliflower ears do you get? Not a lot, but enough for me to know that. (laughs) (laughs) All right. (laughs) But um, John was kind of dumb, and he had a bad attitude, and he was alarmingly immature. Are you ready for a story? Uh, is it a story about how immature he is? Because we're yeah. pretty immature, and so that I feel kind of no. This is about this. this is a whole new level. Okay, okay. okay. <laughs> so John has a ton of tattoos, including an anarchy hand tattoo, which that must have hurt. Yeah, I mean, oh my god, and multiple neck tats. And at one point, one of the coaches on the show was like, "Is that a grenade neck tattoo?" That must be fun going through the airport. Yeah. And John was like, oh, no, what's tough in the airport is this belt. And then he pulled out this belt he had that was basically just a row of bullets. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Seen those before. Pretty badass, huh? Mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I see that lady boner popping. No. <laughs> so he told this story about how he tried to get on an airplane with that belt on. And in the story, he acted like the TSA guy was the weirdo for not letting him on the plane with a belt of bullets. Yeah, no, the TSA guy was doing his job. (laughs) (laughs) And you were an idiot for going to an airport with that thing on. Yeah. But yeah, in his retelling, he's like, I told the guy, like, what am I going to shoot him with? My teeth? Uh." 
It's like, yeah, you're just not, we're not going to let you on. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, read the room, man. Yeah. We have to take off our shoes yes. to go through security. You think I can't bring liquids on here. You think you can bring a bullet? <laughs> a whole belt full of bullets? Absolutely not. <laughs> In confessionals, John's coach referred to him as a knucklehead and a little nutty and said that he needed a shrink. Which, in retrospect, is what we call horrifying foreshadowing. Yeah, I was or watching this like warning signs. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I was watching this like, oh god, oh, oh, oh no. Uh, uh, uh. John started the show as an unpopular contestant. He didn't get much airtime, but when he did, it was usually for getting drunk and fighting with other dudes. Which I feel like that has to be just like normal, right? I mean, it would be unusual if you didn't do that on yeah. the show. I don't know. I, I have not seen a full episode. <laughs> um, <laughs> the YouTube show also noted that he made, quote, crude and indelicate remarks over a number of sensitive topics. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. I'd like examples, but all right, I'll take your word for it. But all that changed with episode eight, a very special episode of The Ultimate Fighter. Picture it. Young John, a.k.a. War Machine, is sitting by the pool on an artificial rock. He's shirtless, got his hat on backwards. And what's this? He's journaling. He's a sensitive soul. Oh, my gosh. Cut to a confessional with John. He's still shirtless, and he has tears in his eyes. And he talks about how he thought he was over his dad's death, but now being in this house with all the stimuli gone and nothing to do but think, he realizes that he's not over his dad's death. That moment of vulnerability made John a fan favorite. But it didn't make him a good fighter because he went on to lose his fight in the first round. But even though he lost the show... He'd been a popular enough contestant that he got a second chance. He and another fan favorite got to compete for a UFC contract in a pay-per-view fight. Oh. I will now describe that fight to you. (laughs) (laughs) Really? Yeah, here we go. You ready? Okay. Two shirtless, shoeless dudes having a disagreement. They simply must scuffle. Their bodies glisten with sweat, possibly baby oil. They play cat and mouse. Bet you can't get me, bet you can't get me. There's some passionate hugging on the ground, some rolling around with legs wrapped around each other. This goes on for some time. And just when it looks like both men will explode, John wins. There you go. Mm-hmm. That's... You see, I am available is for it a color fight? commentary. Is it a porn? We're not sure. <laughs> <laughs> it's really up in the air. <laughs> but the good times didn't last long. Because I don't know if I've emphasized this enough. John lacked good judgment. He did dumb shit. He said dumb shit. And he wrote dumb shit on social media. Oh, Great. So in the summer of 2008, 37-year-old UFC fighter Evan Tanner went on a trip by himself through the California desert, and sadly, he died from heat exposure on that trip. In the aftermath of Evan's death, John decided that he had some insight to share. Oh, no. He got on MySpace, and here's part of what he wrote. What's wrong, Brandy? You already seem horrified. I am. Here we go. 
No one's sure yet, but it sounds like it was a suicide. (gasps) Sad thing is that it makes sense. What else is an underpaid fighter supposed to do at the end of his career? Cash in his 401k? Collect social security? Start to work some shitty job for 10 bucks an hour? No wonder why you took off into the woods. Probably reminisced on the days when he was a champ, the days when growing old didn't matter and took his life. Severe depression plagues many fighters at the end of their careers. Mark my words when I say he may be the first, but he isn't the last. Wow. Okay, so I don't know about what these guys are paid. Might be a perfectly fine point, but yeah, you don't say, oh, you know what? I think it was suicide when you have no fucking idea. No kidding. Medical examiners determined that Evan did not die by suicide. But, you know, John was pretty confident that he was onto something, so he stuck to his guns. You know how it is. You know how it is. No. (laughs) And UFC was like, okay, that's enough of you. We're done. And John handled that really well by publicly referring to the UFC as F-word asses. And obviously not fucking, you know. So Okay, legit, at uh, first I was like, why isn't she saying that? I know, I, I realized, like, <laughs> I, then I got it. Yeah, you yeah, got it, all uh-huh. right. Yeah. Brandy, I can see that you're worried about John's career. What's going to happen to him? Don't worry, he's fine. After that, Bellator Fighting Championships signed John. But then John got on MySpace again. (laughs) John, John, John. This is just a very level-headed political critique, okay? Are you ready? (laughs) Are you ready? He said that someone should murder Barack Obama. (gasps) Oh, not, not just Barack Obama. Hang on. And also, quote... Every president to come until they can actually give us a candidate that is truly one of the people. Oh, my gosh. Just a super chill comment about murdering the president and every future president. Wow. You're not going to believe this, but Bellator released him after that comment. I guess those PC bitches were scared of a little free speech. Am I right? (laughs) (laughs) But don't worry. John assured his fans that he would continue to speak his mind. He was so brave. He wasn't just brave, though. He was also a business cat. Mm. He decided he wouldn't just be a fighter. He would also do porn. He announced this on his MySpace with a post titled, War Machine to Whore Machine, LOL, which I hate (laughs) to admit that I like it. (laughs) That's pretty good, right? Yeah. And he was thrilled. He was like, he told his fans, I'm living the dream. Yeah. I'm getting paid to fight and fuck. What more could I ask for? So you get the idea. He's fucking for both business and pleasure. Uh But he was also fighting for business and pleasure. And it turns out you really can't do that last one. So we're jumping around the timeline a bit. But in the fall of 2007, he got into a fight in a parking lot. And he punched a guy in the face and choked him until he was unconscious. But, you know, John reflected on it, and afterward he felt, like, super bad about it. He did an interview where he talked about that fight. Here's how it went. Oh, boy. Interviewer. To have that image out there that a fighter is choking people out is scary. Okay, so I need you to picture John. He's in a swivel chair, and he's just kind of swinging, and he's kind of smirking, and he goes, It's nice to choke him out. Because if you wanted to, you could smash their whole body apart. 
So a choke is nice and quiet, nice and peaceful. You take a little nap, you wake up, no harm done. On the other hand, you smash them to pieces, they're really hurt. So that's the nice way out. <gasps> oh, yikes. Yeah, so clearly John learned a lot from that experience, and he would never do it again. Oops, except he did. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't think that's what we're here to talk about today. (laughs) (laughs) End of story. (laughs) This time he rendered a bouncer unconscious. But I think when you hear John's side of the story, you'll see that it was kind of the bouncer's fault. I don't think I will. Ready for another quote? (laughs) Okay, here's what he said in an interview. There's always a little bit of tension between us. He's a big dude, 6'4", 320 pounds, big giant dude. And that night in particular, we had words. It kept escalating, you know. He was going to beat me up. I was going to beat him up. Talking shit, talking shit, talking shit, talking shit. Eventually, it got to the point where I'm like, what's up? And he's like, what's up? Do something, do something. <laughs> he's telling me to do something. Egging me on, egging me on, egging me on. Kind of challenging me, wanting to fight. And I'm like, dude, you don't want to fight me. And he's like, dude, come on, let's do it. We did it. He lost. It was only one punch. I didn't, you know, I didn't terrorize him. One punch. He lost. I won. I got in trouble. Had I lost, I would have gone home, went to sleep, woke up and said, not going to do that again. Some people are a little bit different. They like to pick fights. Then they like to call the cops, you know? Holy shit. (laughs) For that assault, John got three years of probation and 30 days of community service. And since he wasn't in jail, John got back into MMA and focused on his career. He fought all over the place in sort of low-level shows so that he could build up a massive winning streak and hopefully return to the UFC. So he fought and fought and fought, and he grabbed hold of dudes, and he rolled around with them and held them real tight, and he won and won and won and won <laughs> until he lost. And it was devastating. It real well. Oh, yeah, real level-headed guy. <laughs> It looked like he might never make it back to the UFC, both because he wasn't good enough and because he was a fucking mess. Because you're not going to believe this. Oopsies. John got into another fight with a bouncer. This time there was security footage of the whole thing, and John had to finally face a more serious consequence Mm -hmm. than just probation. He was sentenced to one year in the San Diego County Jail. But for some reason, he got a two-month delay before his sentence started. So in those two months, he found the lured. Just kidding. He found alcohol and he drank it. And he got into another fight for business this time, not pleasure. And afterward, he went to jail. And he ended up staying a while because the judge found out about some other street fights he'd gotten into. And so even though his original sentence was for a year, he stayed for two. Oh, And the whole time, John was very active on Twitter, and he blogged about his life in jail. What? Yeah. How? I'm not really sure. (laughs) What? (laughs) He spent most of his time in solitary confinement. And, you know, I think a lesser man would have wasted that time. But, you know, the thing about solitary confinement is it gives you lots of time to think. Time to think about clothing. Specifically t-shirts and tank tops. Did he start a clothing company? (laughs) And also what it means to be a man. No. Not some wimpy, feminine beta cuck. No! I'm talking about alpha males! Ah, Alpha males! I'm rock hard just thinking about them! Oh no. 
And that is how John's... I would argue that if you're rock hard thinking about alpha males... (laughs) What? You might be gay. (laughs) You could be a gay alpha male. Well, no, probably not. I bet you'd get kicked out of the club real fast. (laughs) (laughs) Can you tell I don't know much about alpha male? So that's how John's clothing line was born. He called it... Oh, Lord. Alpha male shit. Alpha male shit? Yes. Yes, that was the name of his clothing line. Alpha male shit. Mm-hmm. I mean, self-burn. Yeah. He launched it with a friend, and incredibly, it's still around today, though no longer affiliated with John. Can't imagine why. But, oh, they made very cool shirts, What'd Brandy. they say? What'd they say? They had shirts with pithy, clever little phrases like, PC is some un-American, borderline commie bullshit. That's too much. That's too much on a t-shirt. That's too much. (laughs) We're not even going to address the message. That's too too much. much. No, he's taking the time to soak that whole message in, buddy. They also said it's borderline. You can't go all in on the commie bullshit. It's just borderline. Yeah, they're really using some kind of passive. Yeah. Excuse me, it seems to me that PC... (laughs) They also sold motivational tank tops. Okay. That read, don't be a pussy. (laughs) Personally, I just hear that and I'm like, oh, okay, I won't. (laughs) Also, for the guys who just wanted to keep it simple, there was a shirt that read, alpha male. Oh, there was another. Sh- I assert my dominance. <laughs> <laughs> there was another shirt that read, "I do alpha male shit." Mm. I don't think I have to tell you that this was all caps. Yeah. So it was all pretty great stuff. It was the kind of apparel that screams, "I'm totally secure with who I am." <laughs> <laughs> and um, you might be thinking, "Gosh, that sounds like it's probably." toxic and sexist and um, you're wrong though because of your tiny lady brain and John knew that you might feel that way so on the clothing brand's website they wrote up a little something about the importance of women are you ready to hear it oh I am strong women are important to the world and they always have been even back when they had no rights women are the gatekeepers of sorry (laughs) are those quotes in there Yeah, it quotes around rights. Oh, no. Women are the gatekeepers to the future. They select what genes will be spread to the next generation. And that is much more important than any bullshit vote they may cast on any bullshit ballot. A strong, smart woman is essential to raising strong, smart children. And every real man needs a strong, smart woman to come home to. In the movie 300, the Persian tells Leonidas, okay, I know we're taking a hard left turn. What makes this woman think she can speak among us men? Leonidas's queen responds, because only Spartan women give birth to real men. And now nothing more needs to be said about this. What? You feeling special? No. Hey, ladies, you feeling special? Don't worry about voting, because you can select the genes <laughs> that go down to the next generation. Yeah. You know. Uh-huh. Yeah. 
I handpicked London's jeans. (laughs) Brandy, you seem intrigued. You seem like you'd like to know John on a deeper level. Well, you're in luck. (laughs) Because around this time, he began vlogging. And it was great because those vlogs really proved what a nice, normal guy he was. Did they? Sure did. For example, in one video, he's in his car driving and he's got a hoodie on with the hood up. And here's what he says. Oh, my fucking God. I'm so fucking pissed right now. Dude, I've been craving a fucking Slurpee since last night. I want a Slurpee. I want a fucking Slurpee. And I see 7-Eleven. So I go and I want to get a Slurpee. And I fill up my fucking cup. And the fucking bitch who fucking works there fucking tells me that I need to take off my fucking hoodie off my head. I was like, what? Huh? And the fucking bitch tells me that I have to take my fucking hoodie off or she's not going to fucking serve me a fucking Slurpee. You fucking serious? <laughs> oh my God. I'm so, I freaked the fuck out. And then the fucking other asshole that works there says he's going to call the cops. I want to, I want to, I'm so, I want to smash the fucking motherfucker. So I fucking, I dump my fucking Slurpee on the floor so those fucking dumb motherfuckers could clean it up. Why? Oh, oh, oh my God, I'm so fucking mad. Why can't I just get a fucking Slurpee? You can. You just got to take your hood down. Why the motherfuckers (laughs) got to harass me and tell me to take off my fucking hoodie? That's a store policy, sir. I'm going to go to this other 7-Eleven right now, and I'm going to get a fucking Slurpee right now. These motherfuckers better not tell me to take off my fucking hoodie. They better not give me a hard fucking time. Motherfuckers. Oh, my God, these motherfuckers. Oh, my God. (laughs) So he gets out of the car. (laughs) I'm getting so sweaty. It's tough being filled with rage. Being an alpha male. (laughs) (laughs) Clearly I wasn't caught out out here for an alpha male. (laughs) So, you know, he gets out of the car. You know, so few people take on the plight of the alpha male. (laughs) It's too difficult. Yeah. Most persecuted person there is. (laughs) Video turns off. Then the video comes back on. And our hero appears on screen. Fucking A! Look what I got! Fucking Slurpee! Look at my hood still on! Yeah, you know what, man? I'm fucking real fucking glad this fucking dick over here sold me a Slurpee. Because if that motherfucker wouldn't have given me a Slurpee, then I would have had to fucking boycott 7-Eleven and all Slurpees. And I don't like to boycott Slurpees. Oh, my gosh. Relatable. I don't like to boycott Slurpees either. Nor do I. Don't put me in that position. I will fucking grab my fucking Slurpee on the floor. That's right. This will shock you, but he also vlogged about his steroid use, which is weird because he seems so stable. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's the motherfuckers at 7-Eleven that had the problem, Brandy. Yeah, obviously. Obviously. Oh, and also turns out the motherfuckers at 24-Hour Fitness... They also had a problem. What'd they do? Okay. Oof. Uh-oh. Oh, no. Brandy, I feel another rant going Oh, on. no. Here we go. John gets in the car, and here's what he says. Hey, yo, fuck 24-hour fitness, man. Oh, my God. I'm about to freak the freaking fuck out. 
I just left my fucking workout, so I'm working out. I'm doing fucking uh, weighted pull-ups at 24-hour fitness, and I'm using, you know, chalk, because I go heavy. I'm doing, like, 105 pounds, and it fucking slips, so you need chalk. And uh, this fucking, this fucking old fucking skinny white fucking little bitch, this little man, I'm chalking my hands, and I'm, I fucking walk up. I walk up to the bar, and he goes, hey, chalk's not allowed in this gym. And I was like, what? He was like, I was like, I don't give a fuck. <laughs> And he's like, oh, you don't give a fuck? And I said, I don't give a fuck. And I said, get the fuck out of my way, motherfucker. And he's like, oh, 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 I've been here for six years. And I said, I don't give a fuck. Get the fuck out of my way. Get the fuck out of my way. I said, motherfucker, you better get the fuck out of my fucking way. If I wasn't on probation, I would have smashed his face. (laughs) If it was the old days, oh, my God, dude. But then I'm wearing my I do alpha male shit fucking shirt, my fucking tank top. And he's like, oh, also, your shirt has profanity. I said, motherfucker, shit is not a fucking cuss word. I was like, you're taking it too far, motherfucker. You're taking it too fucking far. I'm going to freak the fuck out. Get the fuck out of my face. I'm going to finish my fucking workout. And then I'm going to cancel my membership. I'm going to snap. I'm going to snap. I go downstairs to check out and I tell the chick, hey, where's your bitch ass little manager? <laughs> <laughs> And she looked at me all crazy. And then I went into the manager's office and he's like, oh, I'm really sorry. I'm like, I don't give a fuck. I'm like, get out of my fucking face right now. I don't give a fuck. I don't give a fuck. Oh, my fucking God, dude. I'm fucking pissed. Oh, hey. Uh, go to alphamaleshit.com. Buy some fucking shit because why not? Because it's good shit. Because I don't know. I want to make money because I'm broke. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god! <laughs> oh god, these videos are a wild ride. <laughs> For his first six months after getting out of jail, this was how he spent his life. He vlogged, he got on MySpace, and he was always posting super inspirational stuff that you find in a Google search like, Do not pray for easy lives, pray to be stronger men. Think on that for a while. Oh, what's that? You want an easier life? Mm, (laughs) (laughs) And in April of 2013, he got an opportunity to appear in a photo spread for Hustler magazine. And John knew exactly who he wanted to model next to. Porn star Christy Mack. He'd never met Christy, but he was a big fan. So let's talk about Christy. Yeah, what's she look like? Can I look her up? Yeah. Christy Mack. Is that with a K? Actually, no, don't look her up yet. Why? I can't see what she looks like? Well, because you're, you're going to see some other pictures, and I don't want you to see them yet. I will describe her to you. Okay. Christy's legal name is Christine Mackenday, and she grew up in a super small town in Indiana. She was a cheerleader, and she made great grades, and she was very introverted and loved animals. And when she was just 18, she married her high school sweetheart. But, you know, their life together was a little dull. And so when someone approached her about nude modeling, she was like, yes. And she said, bye-bye to the husband. She moved to Miami and got into nude modeling. Christy was super successful, not only because she's, like, super beautiful, but also because she has a very unique look. Mm -hmm. She's covered in tattoos. Mm -hmm. She had a long black mohawk. Okay, I was going to say, is half her head shaved? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So she's got the shaved head going on. Yeah. She's five foot one. I mean, really tiny, very curvy in all the right places. You know what I mean. Yes. (laughs) 
And when she started doing porn, her career really took off, thanks in part to her unique look and also kind of a unique story. She has this, like, badass look, but she was also straight edge, so she never drank, never Mm -hmm. did drugs. So she went to this photo shoot and met John, and she was a little standoffish because he was clearly into her, and she liked her independence. She wasn't looking for a boyfriend. Also, she had pneumonia. Oh. So she was not feeling great. Yeah. (laughs) And John was like, oh, let me come to your hotel room. I'll take care of you. And she knew the deal and was very upfront with him. She's like, no, I don't want to have sex with you. And he's like, oh, that's cool. Let's just hang out. And so they did. They ate pizza and talked and he took care of her. And Christy was amazed at the connection she had with John. And because he was so charming, she fell in love with him very quickly. So a few weeks after that photo shoot... They began dating. She was 22. He was 32. Okay. Yeah, nice and young. She'd never really experienced someone loving her Mm -hmm. that way. You know, just so so emphatically, I guess. Mm -hmm. And things were great. First of all, they looked perfect together. They were this incredibly hot, tattooed couple. Actually, let me, I will pull up a picture of her and show it to you. How about, how about that? I think I know who she is, and not from porn, but because sure. I had this coworker who had, like, this big, beefy bodybuilder boyfriend, and, like, he wanted her to look like this particular porn star, and so she shaved part of her head. So I am sure that it is this woman. Yeah. Yeah, yes. that's it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Gosh, I would be kind of offended if Norm was like, hey, I see how you look now. I'd like to make some modifications. Yeah. <laughs> so they looked perfect together. They were this incredibly hot, tattooed couple, and they were both in these very public career fields. And so they got endorsement deals, and Bravo reached out about doing a reality show. They looked like a great match. But there were some red flags. For example, John didn't approve of Christie's career. Even though he knew what she did for a living when they met, and he'd also been in porn. Yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. But Christie tried to accommodate him, so she stopped doing videos and limited herself to nude photos and just appearances. It didn't totally make John happy, but it was a pretty big accommodation for someone who made her living in porn. Absolutely. And she was willing to make it because they were so in love. At one point, he got her last name tattooed on his neck, and she got a red tattoo on her shoulder that looked like a stamp that read Property of War Machine. I know. I hate it. (laughs) Christy did notice that John was quick to anger, but he was always good about removing himself from a situation before it got out of hand. And at some point after she'd fallen in love... He told Christy about his past. He'd done some stupid shit. He'd gotten into fights. But it was okay. She understood him, and he understood her. Mm-hmm. But about three months into their relationship, John stopped removing himself from the situation when he got angry. He'd slap her. Sometimes he'd choke her to the point that she'd lose consciousness. It was really scary, but Christy was in love with him. And the next few days after the violence, they'd have the best days of their entire relationship. John would take time off from training, and they'd watch all of Christy's favorite movies, and he'd go to the store and get her snacks, and they had takeout, and it was bliss. He was sorry. It would never happen again. 
until it did. Christie describes their relationship as volleying between basically opposite ends of the spectrum. It was at times very violent, Mm -hmm. and it was at times extremely loving. So it's obviously the cycle of violence. They're on the merry-go-round. Yeah. And as the relationship progressed, so did the violence. Christie had always prided herself on being strong and independent. It was embarrassing that this was happening to her. She tried to hide the effects of the violence, but it was impossible. Mm-hmm. She and her mom, Erin, lived together during part of the time when Christy and John dated. And Erin noticed the changes in her daughter. Suddenly, Christy was isolated. She didn't want to do anything. She was super quiet. One day, Erin heard Christy and John fighting. So Erin came out. I think she was in her room. She came out. She's like, what's going on? And Christy was just hysterical. She had a big red mark around her neck, and she said that John had grabbed her by the neck and dragged her up the stairs. So Aaron's like, well, I'm going to call the police. Yeah. And John, of course, flipped out. He started grabbing all his stuff, throwing clothes into a laundry bag, and the whole time he yelled at Aaron on repeat, I'm going to kill you, I'm going to kill you, I'm going to kill you. Oh, my God. So I don't believe Aaron called the police. She must have been talked out of it. But from that point on, Aaron hated John, Mm -hmm. and John hated Aaron because she'd threatened to call the police on him, and if she called the police on him, he would go back to jail. Mm -hmm. So from that point on, when John was violent with Christy, he took away her cell phone. He didn't want her calling her mom. For Christy, the idea of calling the cops on John was complicated for a lot of reasons. One of them, she loved him. You don't want to call the cops on the person you love, Mm -hmm. but also because she was terrified. He'd told her in no uncertain terms that if he ever went to prison for what he did, he'd send his Navy SEAL friends or his Hells Angels friends to attack her and her family. In one particularly scary fight, they were in the car together and John was driving down the road and he got angry about some dumb shit. And Christy was wearing a set of gold fangs that had been designed for her. John ripped her wig off, and Christy took out the fangs because she knew from experience that he was going to hit her. Mm -hmm. And she didn't want to chip her teeth or swallow one of the fangs. But as they drove, Christy realized that maybe this time she could escape. He might not get a chance to hit her. So she slowly unbuckled her seatbelt and waited for them to hit a stoplight. When they did, she flung open the door to escape, but John grabbed her by the hair and slammed her head into the dashboard. Oh, my God. Her tooth got chipped, and he brought her face to meet his, and he bit her chin and hit her multiple times. He turned down a side road, and he told her, now I have to kill you because people saw you try to escape. Now I have to take you to the desert and kill you. She was bent over crying, and he punched her in the back. He took her to a gym parking lot. And he calmed down. He told her he'd clean her up. Everything would be fine. He drove her back to her house. And he went into the house first and told Christy's mom that Christy was just getting some stuff out of the car. She'd be in in a few minutes. And when Aaron went back to her room, he told Christy to come inside and get cleaned up. Christy later told her mom that she fell down the stairs. Oh, my gosh. She told her friends that she'd gotten head-butted by a dog. She had two pit bulls and five snakes, and she either said two parrots or two ferrets. I couldn't quite hear the audio. (laughs) So, I mean, you know, she's trying to 
come up with something semi-realistic. Mm-hmm. So the violence was getting worse, but John didn't just beat Christy. He also raped her multiple times. Mm-hmm. She'd tell him to stop, but eventually she'd just give up. There was no sense in fighting back. Their relationship lasted about a year and a half, but it was on again, off again. Like in basically all domestic violence cases, it's never a clean break. It takes multiple attempts to leave, and the abuser is often able to reel the survivor back in. But in May of 2014, John dumped Christy. But he still had a key to her house. Oh, shit. Three months later, it was the middle of the night on August 8th, 2014. Christy and 35-year-old Corey Thomas were in her bed asleep. Their relationship is a little unclear. It seems they did date for a while, but maybe at this point they were just friends. They were Mm -hmm. going to a tattoo convention the next morning. I don't personally think it matters what their relationship was. No, it doesn't. But anyway, so they're they're in the same bed together. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, at like 2 a.m., the light flipped on in the bedroom. John was standing there, enraged. He said, what the fuck? And he began beating the shit out of Corey. John just wailed on him, and Corey tried to cover his face. But, you know, John's a professional fighter, and he kept hitting him. So Corey grabbed him by the back of his head to try to, like, flatten him out so he couldn't punch as easily. But when he did that, John bit his face. Oh, my gosh. So Corey let go, and John began hitting him all over again. Meanwhile, Christy grabbed her phone and dialed 911. She couldn't talk, but the audio from the call is horrible. It's just a ton of screaming, and you can hear Christy yelling, John, please don't kill him. She hid the phone under some towels so John wouldn't see it. Oh, my gosh. I went on a bit of a... No, I'm going to keep telling the story. All right. All right. So she's made this 911 call. Mm -hmm. Corey tried to push John away, and John bit his arm. Finally, Corey used his feet to push against John and get him away. Corey leapt off the bed, but John ran over and put him in a chokehold. Corey began to see stars. He started to lose consciousness. Physically, he knew he was done. Mm -hmm. Corey asked him, what do you want from me? Do you want to kill me or do you want me to walk out of here? John didn't respond. Instead, he just bragged about his friends. His friends were Hell's Angels. His friends were Navy SEALs. How do I know if I let you go, you're not going to be a snitch? And Corey said, I'm no snitch. So that's that. If we make an agreement to handle this and this is over, then it is. And John agreed. He did? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. This whole time, while he was beating up Corey, he'd been telling Christy, Tell him you're in love with me. Tell him, you know, that you, you know, all this. And of course she's, yeah, Yeah, she's saying whatever whatever she wants to say, whatever he wants her to say. Yeah. So Corey got up, he gathered his things. He and John nodded at each other and Corey walked out the door. The attack had lasted 10 minutes. Corey had a dislocated shoulder, a broken nose and bite marks on his face and arm. But he'd gotten off easy. He left Christie's home, leaving her alone with John, and he kept his promise to John. He did not call the police. Mm-hmm. So, for the next two hours, John brutally attacked her. Mm-hmm. 
He sexually assaulted her. He beat her. He used one of her kitchen knives on her. He pushed it into her ear. He pushed it into her hand. He sawed off her hair. He cut her wigs. He sliced her head. At some point, she was in the shower. She still doesn't remember how she got there. Mm -hmm. Just that she came to consciousness in the shower, naked. Her shorts were in the shower with her. And her mouth was filling with blood. While she was in there, John went through her phone and he screamed it through her and he screamed at her through the shower door about stuff he was seeing on her phone that he didn't like. She can't really remember what it was. She can just remember the taste of blood. Mm -hmm. Then she was on her hands and knees outside the shower and he kicked her in the ribs. He kicked her so hard that she fell over and began convulsing. She told him she needed help. She was certain she was going to die. Yeah. But he told her that nobody could help her. And he put a dog blanket over her. Oh, my gosh. By this point, he was cutting her again, and he was so angry and cutting with such force that the handle broke off the knife. Oh, my gosh. But he kept using it. He grabbed it by the blade and kept swinging. He looked at her, beaten and bloodied, and said, Now I have to kill you. I've gone too far. You can't be seen like this. Everyone's going to know. So he went to the kitchen. And she could hear him rummaging around, presumably for another knife. And even though she was bloody and badly beaten, she knew she had to move. Mm -hmm. So she went out to her balcony and jumped off. (gasps) Okay. I'm having trouble picturing this because... Mm -hmm. Some sources say she jumped off the balcony. Other sources say it was the first floor. I, at any rate, she she yeah. escaped, and she hobbled down the street, trailing blood. She hopped a fence. Keep in mind, she's naked. She had yeah. the dog blanket, and that was it. Mm-hmm. A neighbor spotted her naked and bloody, completely unrecognizable, and called the police. She was rushed to the hospital. So I was going to tell you about that 911 call she made. Mm-hmm. Apparently, the call cut out, and so when they ran a trace on the call, the trace was off a little bit. It took them to a house about 100 feet away from Christie's, and so the police went to that residence and everything was fine. Yeah. Mm. Someone else said that they heard stuff going on and called the police and they were brushed off. Oh, my gosh. Anyway, at some point, John discovered that Christy was missing. And even though she left a trail of blood everywhere she went, he either couldn't find her or he decided to run. Mm -hmm. Early that morning, he sent some texts to Christy's mom, Erin. It was like 6.44 a.m. He texted her, you awake yet? There was a huge fight when I came in. The guy she was in bed with came at me. Oh, my gosh. So, you know, Erin woke up to these texts, and she was so stunned that she didn't even bother responding by text. She just called him. And he said, we got into a fight, and I had to beat her up. And Erin just hung up. I had to beat her up? Nothing is his fault. Yeah, of course not. Ever. Nothing is ever his fault. Yeah. Erin told her boyfriend, you got to get up now. He's done something to Christy. Move your car so I can get across Mm -hmm. town. She drove to Christy's place, and on the way there, a realization dawned on her. She's dead. Mm -hmm. 
Erin arrived on the scene and police were everywhere. She ran over. Officers told her to stop, but she kept going until she was in the home face to face with a police officer. And she said, is my daughter dead? And the police officer looked at her kind of stunned and she said, no, she's at Sunrise Hospital. So from there, Erin rushed to the hospital and got to Christie's room and saw her daughter in an unrecognizable state. Christy asked her mom not to cry. So Erin squatted down underneath the hospital bed so she wouldn't upset Christy, and she held her hand and cried. Hmm. Christy had 18 broken bones in her face, 12 missing teeth, three rib fractures, and a ruptured liver. Oh my gosh. She had been beaten so badly that she couldn't walk for a week. And while she tried to recover, John went on the run. And rumors started swirling. Rumors like, she wasn't really hurt. Or, you know, she had initiated the violence. You know how that is. Also, you know, she was a porn star, so how could she oh, be a victim? Fuck off. Oh, no, there's plenty more where that came from. If you're a porn star, you can't be the victim of anything. Not true. Mm. <laughs> nope. I've got some defense attorneys that I need you to talk to. <laughs> so Christy made a decision. She decided to show the world what John had done to her. She tweeted four photos of her horrific injuries, and alongside those photos, she told her story. Here's what she said. This is kind of long, but I Mm -hmm. think it's really good, and I love that it's just in her voice, so I'm going to read the whole thing. Yeah. I mean, I read that whole Slurpee thing, so obviously we can sit for this. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Motherfucker. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Here we go. At about 2 a.m. Friday morning, John Copenhaver arrived unannounced to my home in Las Vegas, Nevada. After he broke up with me in May, he moved out of my house and back to San Diego. When he arrived, he found myself and one other fully clothed and unarmed in the house. Without a single word spoken, he began beating my friend. Once he was finished, he sent my friend away and turned his attention to me. He made me undress and shower in front of him, then dragged me out and beat my face. I have no recollection of how many times I was hit. I just know my injuries that resulted from my beating. My injuries include 18 broken bones around my eyes, my nose is broken in two places, I am missing teeth and several more are broken. I am unable to chew or see out of my left eye. My speech is slurred from my swelling and lack of teeth. I have a fractured rib and severely ruptured liver from a kick to my side. My leg is so badly injured that I have not been able to walk on my own. I also sustained several lesions from a knife he got from my kitchen. He pushed the knife into me in some areas such as my hand, ear, and head. He also sawed off much of my hair with this dull knife. After some time, the knife broke off the handle, and he continued to threaten me with the blade. I believed I was going to die. He has beaten me many times before, but never this badly. He took my phone and canceled all of my plans for the following week to make sure that no one would worry about my whereabouts. He told me he was going to rape me, but was disappointed in himself when he couldn't get hard. After another hit or two, he left me on the floor bleeding and shaking, holding my side from the pain of my rib. He left the room and went into the kitchen where I could hear him ruffling through my drawers. 
Assuming he was finding a sharper, more stable knife to end my life, I ran out my back door, shutting it behind me so the dogs didn't run inside to go tip him off. I hopped the fence to the golf course behind my house and ran to a neighboring house. Naked and afraid he would catch me, I kept running through the neighborhood, knocking on doors. Finally, one answered, and I was brought to the hospital and treated for my injuries. I would like to thank everyone for their support through this rough time. I am healing fast and well, and I appreciate all the prayers and visits I have received over the past few days. After many months of fear and pressure to keep this man happy, although I fear for my life, I feel that I can no longer put myself in this situation. The cheating by him nearly every day and almost weekly abuse is now more than I can stand. There is a $10,000 reward for the capture of Jonathan Copenhaver at this time. Please report any information to your local police. Thank you, Christy Mack. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Are you, do you want to see the photos? or Yes. Okay. Here are the photos she posted. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Can you describe them? Yeah. I mean, her face is so swollen, it, her eyes won't open. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and the, she has a giant bruise on her mm-hmm. leg. Mm-hmm. Oh, my gosh. I think it's really sad that she had to post pictures of herself and yeah. tell her entire story for people to believe her. Yeah. But the tweets did make a huge impact, and so did her story. And they really impacted John. Because that dum-dum was hiding from the police, but he couldn't help himself. He responded? He had to defend himself on Twitter. Oh, my God. (laughs) He wrote a series of woe is me tweets, trying to say that he'd gone over to Christie's place that night with an engagement ring. He wanted to propose to her, and he'd found another man in her bed. We weren't fucking together. Oh, no, no, no. You're you're misunderstanding this whole thing. It was a crime of passion, Brandy. Mm-mm. And see, she cheated on him. No. Nope. After he dumped her. And uh, that's why this happened. Okay. I'm going to read one of these tweets to you. No, no. Okay. Whew. I only wish that man hadn't been there and that Christy and I would be happily engaged. I don't know why I'm so cursed. One day the truth will come out. Fuck off. Yeah. Yep. Oh, my gosh. Okay, so now tell us the part where, like, their Twitter, like, attaches, like, a geo-tracking thing to your tweets. And so they were able to, you know, zoom right in and take him into custody. That's what I was expecting to happen, too. Yeah, is that what happens? Because, you know... Cell phones go ping, go ping. cell towers go, go pong. pong. We uh-huh. know your location all the day long. Yeah. That is not how he was caught. <laughs> it's not? <laughs> okay. If you had to guess. Well, that's what I would guess. <laughs> I know, but taking into account what you now know of John, uh-huh. I feel like I've painted a real picture of him. Uh-huh. How do you think a guy like this gets caught? I don't know. Was he at the fucking gym or something? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's actually not bad. No, here's what happened. He was staying at the Extended Stay America Hotel in Simi Valley. Is that what you called it? Yeah, I think so. right. (laughs) And this woman, Mary Casameto, saw him pushing a woman and grabbing her by the hair. Oh, of course. 
Of course. He was literally getting violent with another woman. Yep. Mm-hmm. And Mary was like, whoa. And so she called the police. She had no idea who John was. Yeah. She just knew that he was a big, angry, scary dude and he was getting violent. Yeah. So police dropped by and they arrested him. They had to tase him because, you know, he's a mess. And uh, they went into his hotel room and discovered a small quantity of cash and pizza. No Slurpees. Maybe mm. he was boycotting them. Yeah. We don't Seven know. 7-Eleven boycott. Mm-hmm. He didn't want to. The motherfuckers made him. Yeah. (laughs) So John was taken into custody and he was charged with attempted murder, kidnapping, sexual assault, you know, just the works. Yeah. And on October 14th, 2014, he was supposed to appear in court for a discussion of a possible plea deal. His lawyer wanted two to five years. Two to five years? (laughs) Yeah. Um, mm, mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Are we not classifying this as attempted murder? No, it, yeah, it's two counts of attempted murder. Two to five years? Yeah, because here's the thing, Brandy. She made him do it. <laughs> well, yeah, and like she was really in this for the money because after she made that social media post, people made donations to her, which she then donated to charity. But, you know, it was all, you know, it was all kind of a celebrity thing. And so he was just getting charged like this and the DA was after him because he's a celebrity and, you know, he's just kind of unlucky and, you know, he's a felon and he has tattoos and that's why he's being treated this badly. No, he's being treated this way because he attempted to murder someone. Mm -hmm. Two to five years not going to cut it. No deal. Yeah, so that's what Chris... (laughs) I mean, (laughs) Brandy just slammed her laptop shut. (laughs) That was like the thing on the Deal or No yeah. Deal is what I was doing. Oh, see, I don't watch game shows. So. Well, Deal or No Deal hasn't been on for 50 million years. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm not into old-timey game shows no. either. I mean, it's like from the early 2000s. Uh-huh. Uh, you, you know, Howie Mandel. And, you you know, if you want the deal, you hit the button. If not, you close the cover. You never seen this? No. I'm seeing this for the first time right now with you. What? Meghan Markle. Yeah, I know. Was a suitcase girl. Yeah, I know. That's the only thing I know about that show. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry to disappoint you. I'm so disappointed. (laughs) So, you know, he wants two to five years. Totally justified. No. No, totally justified. It's all been blown out of proportion. I want this guy to go to prison for the rest of his life. Yeah, that'd be ideal. He's clearly a repeat offender. Yeah. So, you know... Christy told them, I can't remember what she told the prosecutors. I think she said, you know, I don't feel safe at all. No. I feel like he's going to come kill me. Yes. And I think she said, like, minimum 15 to 25. Yeah. That's what she'd be comfortable mm-hmm. with. So, you know, they're going to. Do- I'm not comfortable with that. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> so he's supposed to appear in court for this plea deal. But that didn't happen because that day, John Copenhaver attempted to die by suicide. He was totally fine, don't worry. But he did write one hell of a note, and I'd like to read portions of it to you now. To Christy, he wrote, Oh, no. I loved you more than freedom. I forgive you. Oh, fuck yourself. (laughs) Are you kidding me? I forgive you. Please forgive me. Yeah, because, you know... 
it's, we're pretty much both to blame. Yeah, yeah. You've been wrong on both sides. Yeah. Who has more to blame? That's not really important. Mm-mm. Okay. He also forgave her for cheating. You weren't together. Right. My dude. That's the thing is you kind of have to be a couple for there to be cheating. Yeah. You know, Channing Tatum has been cheating on me for years. <laughs> he wrote, First with that bitch, Jen, <laughs> and then Jesse J. God. It's exhausting. <laughs> I suppose I've been cheating on him, too, though, with Norman. <laughs> he wrote, they want to charge me with battery and domestic violence? Fine, do it. But don't railroad me with BS fantasy charges like rape, attempted murder, kidnapping, and burglary. It's making it impossible for justice. No, that is fucking justice. Brandy, he's being railroaded. No, he's not. With BS fantasy charges. <laughs> <laughs> he ended the letter with something that I think we can all agree on. <laughs> Society has killed men. I was never meant to live in this era anyway. Follow your dreams and think for yourselves. <laughs> oh, yeah. Keep your feet on the ground, but keep reaching for the stars. <laughs> Am I right? <laughs> As a men's rights activist, I am inspired. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, it really is too bad that John wasn't born in a time when men could just relentlessly beat the gatekeepers of the gene pool. Am I right? Oh, my gosh. I bet you'd like to get to the trial. I would. Well, we can't have nice things, Brandy, so buckle up. John was offered multiple plea deals, including 16 years to life, but he rejected all of them. He wanted to have a jury trial, and he wanted to behave like a jackass. And spoiler alert, both his wishes came true. Oh, great. During a hearing... What? Going to trial is the worst idea ever for him. Why? He's not going to come off as likable to the jury. I mm. feel like he's. I feel like this is a on his part. I. I don't know. I feel like it's a real gamble. It is a real gamble, um, but maybe he's thinking Christy is a porn star. She's covered and in tattoos. Will, will, yeah, just tear down her reputation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Great. And also, Wonderful I, think, strategy. I think more than anything, he buys his own bullshit. Oh, absolutely. He totally buys his own bullshit. And again, I think you can't discount that, like, he's a good-looking man. Mm-hmm. I know people are going to hate that I'm saying that. But, like, I'm not giving the dude a compliment. I'm just saying yeah, these he's, are a, facts. he's yeah. a good-looking guy. He can be charming when he needs to can be. Can I look him up? Yeah, sure. While you do, I'm going to get more water. Cause What's his last name? Um, just look up War Machine. Oh, yeah. Good call. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, so you looked him up. What do you think? Yeah. Um, yeah, he's a good-looking dude. He's not as big as I thought he would be. Suck on that. Mm-hmm. And she's way hotter than he is. Oh, for sure. Exponentially hotter than he is. Absolutely. (laughs) I mean, no contest. Yes. Also, if we could have a who's the better person contest. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. During a hearing about the sexual assault charges, John blew a kiss to the prosecutor. Oh, my. Mm Mm-hmm. Jesus. So he blows this kiss to the prosecutor, and the prosecutor said, 
Judge, for the record, Mr. Copenhaver just blew a kiss at me. And John's defense attorney was like, well, I didn't see that happen. Oh, my gosh. And the judge turned to John and was like, don't make any gestures of any kind toward counsel. Don't go there. And also, um, I didn't write this part down, but the prosecutor turned to the defense and was like, look, I'm not going to make that up. I really resent that. (laughs) (laughs) By the way, at that hearing, John's defense attorney, Brandon Sawa, argued that Christie's work in adult films suggested that she likes rough sex and disqualifies her from accusing John of rape. Um, Rape is not sex. No. No. Brandon. Yeah. Come on, man. How? Yeah, no. He said that Christie's career led her to, quote, desire, the preference, the acceptability towards a particular form of sex activities that were out of the norm. But the prosecution was like, yeah, nice try. There are rape shield laws, which mean you can't use the victim's sexual history against them. Shut up forever. Yeah. And the judge did ask for a written motion about John and Christie's sexual past but said she didn't see the connection between Christie's work in porn and how it could, quote, show her consent to the acts with the defendant that he's charged with. I don't even know why the judge needed. Yeah. Yeah. But OK. Anyway, at another pretrial hearing, when Christie was recounting the times he'd sexually assaulted her, John laughed at her. And the prosecutor asked the judge to note in the court record that he had laughed. Mm -hmm. And John's defense attorney was like, objection, judge. He wasn't laughing. And the judge was like, I watched him laugh. Yeah. It is noted. Oh, my gosh. So this trial got delayed for like two years. But it finally kicked off in February of 2017 in front of a jury of six men and six women. In her opening statement, prosecutor Jacqueline Blurth outlined the attack. She talked about how John told Christy during the attack, that is my pussy, and I'm going to take it back now. And then he got super pissed when he couldn't get an erection, which shocks me because being unable to get an erection doesn't seem like alpha male shit. (laughs) (laughs) Am I right? I mean, if we know anything about John, it's that he does alpha male shit. Yeah. Like, yell at 7-Eleven employees and throw Slurpees on the ground. That's right. The defense argued that Christy Mack had a rape fantasy and that she'd invited John to surprise her. The defense also argued that this was sort of a shared problem. John and Christy had been codependent and their relationship revolved around constant attention and sex and internet personas that exploded in violence. Mm, Okay. So they're right that it wasn't a clean break. They kept in communication with yeah. each other, and some of that communication was sexual. Yeah, but That's super common. Yeah, that's how it goes, and also, that's not a crime. No. No. Yeah, um, there's only one victim here. So <laughs> yeah. Well, it's two. my shared... Pro- yes, I'm sorry. Yes, uh-huh. Corey Yeah, who doesn't Matthews. know how to um, call 911. Yes. What do you make of that? I think he was doing what he thought he had to do to save his own ass. Save his own life. Mm. I think it's super shitty that he just bailed out on his friend and didn't call the police. Mm -hmm. But I think he probably thought he had to do that to keep himself safe. You're a nice person, Brandy. (laughs) All right. (laughs) The prosecution called Corey Thomas and he told the court 
what had happened the night of the attack. Corey talked about being beaten up. There were some kind of funny moments in his testimony, I thought, because, like, you know, he's he was being beaten by a professional fighter. Yeah. And the prosecutor asked, he's like talking about, you know, yeah, he's punching me. And the prosecutor goes, did he land any of those hits? And Corey was like, yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, every single All one. of them. Yeah. All of them landed. And later the prosecutor asked, did you land any punches on him? And Corey laughed. And he goes, no. <laughs> and the prosecutor goes, and why not? And Corey goes, because I was busy getting punched. And the prosecutor goes, okay. <laughs> when Corey got to the part about leaving Christy behind, Corey said that the idea that John would attack Christy never crossed his mind. He said, hitting a girl is not something that I would ever be able to understand doing. So I thought, two guys fought, that's the end of it. I'm spent, I'm sure he is too. That's his official position? Mm-hmm. Okay, I don't like that. No, it's very cowardly. Yeah. He should have called the yeah. police. He was absolutely leaving her in a bad situation. Yep. 100%. Christy gave very emotional testimony all about their relationship. She talked about John's previous acts of violence, about sexual assaults. She talked about the shame she carried for being a survivor of domestic violence. She said, I realize now that I shouldn't have been embarrassed, but at the time I definitely was. The prosecutor asked her, why did you continue to stay with him? And Christy said, I loved him. I would have done anything for him. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to be with him. Yeah. Then Christy told them about the night in question and the terror she felt. Under questioning from the defense, she admitted that she sent John a topless photo of herself the day he attacked her. She texted him, for my sexy Mr. Machine. And he texted back, I needs that. And she texted, it's all yours. The day before the incident, John and Christy exchanged I love you texts. Because domestic violence relationships are complicated. Super complicated. It's not an invitation to come over unannounced and beat the shit out of someone. Nope. Also under cross-examination, the defense asked Christy if it had been worth it to gain all those social media followers after she posted about the attack. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So when he asked that, she just burst into tears. Yeah. And she said, I would not want to almost die for a few followers. No. How fucking dare you? Yeah. Erin McIndae, Christy's mom, gave very powerful testimony. I hate to pick a favorite, but here we go. Mm Mm-hmm. So she shared her perspective on their relationship and everything she witnessed. And the whole time she stared daggers at John. I mean, just watching this, it's uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Toward the end of her testimony, the prosecutor asked her, because of the incidents that you've spoken about, that you have seen the defendant physically violent, because you've seen your daughter's marks and you had concerns, do you regret now not stepping in and going to the police? So Aaron looks right at John, Mm -hmm. and she says, no. She says, the incidents I saw, I really wish I would have shot you. That's my retrospective. I wish I would have shot him. I wish I would have shot you. Oh, my gosh. And the prosecutor goes, okay, thank you very much. (laughs) (laughs) 
prosecution also called doctors to testify about Christie's injuries and the first responders to talk about what they'd witnessed. The defense argued that John's use of steroids had caused aggression and that had played a role in the attack on Christie and Corey. They called two witnesses to the stand who were like, yep, he took steroids. Which, God, after watching those videos, I'm willing to be a witness, too. Yes, yes. he was definitely on steroids. <laughs> well, and Christy even... also said, you know, yes, I, he was definitely on steroids. Yeah. In closing arguments, defense attorney Jay Lederman argued that John was a raging bull. He had brain injuries from fighting, and he was using steroids and antidepressants that combined to cause mood swings and violence. This was a classic case of roid rage. He walked in on Christy in bed with another man. He said, when you add this to rage and sudden shocking events, you really have quite the explosive situation where someone loses their mind. He also claimed that what happened between John and Corey was self-defense. Mm-hmm. And mutual combat. Okay. You know how someone just shows up and... Uh, <laughs> You have to defend yourself when you broke into the home. You know how that is. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. But the prosecution was like, we have no toxicology reports to determine that he was really on this combination of drugs. Mm -hmm. In her closing argument, Jacqueline Bluth told the jury she had the choice to leave, but he had the choice to stop. And only one of those is criminal. Yeah. Mm. The jury deliberated. And they deadlocked on the two counts of attempted murder. They acquitted John on battery with intent to commit sexual assault, burglary with a weapon, and sexually motivated coercion, but found him guilty of everything else. He was sentenced to 36 years to life. He will be eligible for parole when he's 71. Wow. After the verdict came down, John took to Twitter. This was before he got his sentence. Oh, Lord. Prepare yourself. Well, that didn't go very well, now did it? Would you believe me, though, if I said that I have nothing but joy inside, even now, as I am sure to receive some type of life sentence? It's true. Oftentimes I have heard men in neighboring cells go to their cells and cry after receiving such news. But how can I? How can I cry tears of sorrow over the circumstances responsible for saving my soul? These circumstances are what transformed me into a real man. How can I disrespect God by weeping over them? How much is a soul worth? Is a life sentence too high a price? Not at all. I gladly trade this false life in for the real one to come. I have been nothing but blessed by all of this. Now, if only I could somehow receive Christie's forgiveness. And if only I could one day hear that she too had been saved. That would remove every last bit of tarnish from this tragedy. Everyone, I wish you could see Brandy's face. Gross. Oh, yeah. This guy's disgusting. Yeah. Yeah. Christy has become an advocate for domestic violence survivors, but she says she's still receiving death threats from John's fans. Oh, my gosh. Well, I mean, think think about, like, the most toxic fan base ever. Uh, absolutely. They're fans of alpha male shit. I do alpha <laughs> male shit, Yeah. Oh, my gosh. She still doesn't feel safe. 
but she hopes that other domestic violence survivors will get some comfort from her sharing her story. Oh, my gosh. And that's the story of fucking War Machine. War Machine. Lord Almighty. Um, I think he's married now. What? I know. Somebody fucking married him? Yep. Hold on. Pen pal. Yeah. Gross. I really struggle with how to feel about that. I'm reading it. I'm reading an article about it on TMZ <laughs> right now. Uh, they can have a... So this is a TMZ article from when they got engaged, which mm-hmm. is July of 2018. It says that they could have a wedding ceremony in prison and share a hug. But that's it. No conjugal visits. Well, good. I guess that increases her chances of survival. Yeah. Holy shit. Mm-hmm. Can you believe that story? No. I had to cut a lot of his bullshit because, I mean, everything was her fault. Yeah. Everything's everybody else's fault. Yeah. Absolutely. And he's basically an angel now that he's found the Lord. Okay. He just wishes other people could be great like him, you know. Did she get that tattoo removed? Oh, yeah. She got it covered up or removed. Oh. Did she? Yeah. Yeah. She said that, and it's funny, I didn't even think about this, but she obviously wanted that tattoo removed, but after all the pain she'd been in and all the recovery, she didn't want to put herself through pain yeah. again to either get that removed or get that covered up. Yeah. So it took her a while, but eventually she decided, I can't remember what she ended up doing. What? Why are your eyes like that? She, he did get married. Yeah. And she has a kid. And the yeah. kid was present for the wedding. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, my gosh. Oh, that's horrifying. Mm-hmm. Oh, you know what I think we should do now? What's that? Take some questions from the Discord. I agree. And you know how to get in this Discord? You sign up for our Patreon at the $5 level or higher. Mm. Mm. Ass-eating coffee lover wants to know, (laughs) what are you getting rejuvenated over the break? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, if you were to get something rejuvenated, what would you do? Oh, gosh. Probably my face. What would you do? I don't know. I always wanted to try lip fillers. (gasps) Really? Yeah. Those look so painful. Yeah. I mean, do whatever you want, but oh my God. I'm going to do it, but I think that's (laughs) what I would do. Really? Yeah. Oh man. Okay. Also, like, I feel like I've got really bad under eye circles. Like, is there a treatment I can get for that? Um, Yeah. That looks terrifying too. Yeah. It's filler in those. They do filler? Oh yeah. Scary. Okay, I'm going to do that. See, I'm I'm one of those weirdos, like, I'm very vain, but I'm also very wimpy. Yeah, you <laughs> don't like needles at all, no. so. So it's like, at what point will I look in the mirror and be like, you know what, I'm overcoming my fears. <laughs> <laughs> Sad Witch wants to know, Brandy, are there any hair services you just refuse to do because you know it will always look bad? One of the stylists where I work refuses to do blonde highlights in red hair because she hates the Kelly Clarkson look. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I read that and I could picture it exactly. Absolutely, I can picture it. Um, It's not that I refuse to do it because I don't like the way they look. I don't do perms because I hate doing them. And I make my own rules. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, why do you hate doing them? Are they a pain in the ass? They're a pain in the ass. I think people 
have unrealistic expectations for them. I would say 75% of the people who get a perm that are not a little old lady Mm -hmm. think that they're going to wake up every day and have amazing hair Mm -hmm. with no styling. Oh. And this is simply not the truth. Well, God bless them. (laughs) And yeah, they're a pain in the ass to do and I don't like doing them. And they smell bad. (gasps) What do they smell like? They smell like rotten eggs. Mmm, rotten eggs. (laughs) (laughs) So I simply do not do this. Very good. (laughs) Imperfectly KJ says, not a question, but an update. Brandy, my whore winter was about as long as your hoe phase, (laughs) but I have to say I've never been so happy to fail at something so spectacularly. Congratulations. I felt exactly the same way. Good for you, you failed hoes. (laughs) (laughs) Grazed and confused asks, do you like your coffee with cream or black? What about flavored syrups? Black, baby. I know. You're a black coffee mm-hmm. drinker. I like cream in mine. Of course you do. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. weakness right there. <laughs> <laughs> no, do you do the flavored creamers? Uh, so we just have like a sugar-free French vanilla. Wow, it's you guys delicious. are wild. <laughs> okay, you know what I... It's so good that you don't even need to add any Splenda or anything. <laughs> That's how good it is. That's how good it is. No, you know what I do in the winter sometimes? Uh Eggnog eggnog. in your coffee. Oh, that's the good stuff. I bet that is good. I've Mm -hmm. never tried that. We have both coffee and eggnog in my home currently, though. So, Wow. Well, might I make a bold suggestion (laughs) for tomorrow morning? (laughs) Bluey taught me. Got any more merch planned? Should I say? Oh, yeah. Put it out there. Unsure of release date. Yeah. So, you know. We're on it. It's in the the works. works. We're doing another batch of the juvenile Bigfoot hoodies because people people want them. So we're doing another batch, but also controversial crew necks. Yeah. You know, Brandy has to have her hood up to go into 7 Eleven and get that Slurpee. (laughs) But we're doing crew necks that say skeezy scunch in white lettering on a black crew neck because we only wear black. That's right. Be prepared for any funeral at any time. My uncle is a millionaire, <laughs> asks, if you could buy each other any Christmas present, money is no object, what would it be? I know exactly what I would do. What? Okay. What I would want to do is, like, you, me, David, Norm, we go on, like, a an amazing trip to New York City. Mm-hmm. And we see a ton of Broadway shows. Norm would hate it. But maybe he could just stay at the home, at the hotel and watch ESPN. Like, we stay in a really cool hotel. We, like, go do all the dorky tours of, like, NBC. Um, Yeah, I think that would be amazing. That's exactly what I was going to (laughs) say. What? No bullshit. Our gift to each other would be the exact same. Yes. (laughs) We would love it. We would. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I have legit thought of that so many times. Like, yeah. that would be the most fun thing because be so amazing. we fucking love the theater. Yes. Oh, my God. We'd see the shit out of Hamilton. Oh. Oh. Fuck. We can't think about it anymore. It's too oh. good. Oh, my God. Mm, Teddy Bonkers asks, what did you do or want to do as a young teenager that in hindsight you were clearly too young to do? My brother is turning 13 today, and he still seems like a baby. But when I was 13, I was getting drunk in Parks After Dark. Oh, um, I think that, like, 
a 13-year-old today, I would never do let do a lot of the shit that we did. Like, go to the mall by themselves and hmm. um, even, like, gosh, we used really? to ride our bikes all over the place when we were 13. I don't think people let their kids do that now. Really? I think I'd let my kid do that. Really? What if they get abducted? Well, I mean, the thing is, like... We always traveled in a herd. Yeah. And no one wants to get anywhere near a herd of teenage girls. Well, unless you're a really determined pervert. Okay, well, now I see what you mean. Yeah. Um, (laughs) I don't know. Is the world really as scary as we think it is? I mean, we do these true crime stuff all the time. I kind of feel like if you know your neighborhood, you keep an eye on the kids. You're the one driving them there, picking them up. They've all got cell phones. That's true. We didn't have cell phones. You get um, an agreement from everyone at the mall that they will not murder your kids. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> also, do kids even go to malls now? I don't know. I do they? Like, no. I have no idea. I honestly, the I can't tell you the last time I went inside a mall. Actually, no, I can't. I went to Nordstrom not that long ago, but you know what I mean. Yeah. It used to be like every week. Yeah, the hangout. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I'm picturing my niece. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure I'd drop just a group of her and her friends off at the mall. I don't know. What if they were wrapped in bubble wrap? No, I don't <laughs> think that's going to make me feel any better. <laughs> Weird. <laughs> Shay Like the Butter wants to know, Kristen, are you a T-Swift fan? Have you listened to her re-release of Red? I've been thinking about you a lot since the topic of age gaps and romantic relationships and how they tend to spell trouble is very prominent on the interwebs right now, thanks to Taylor. Okay, I have to tell you, I have never been a Swifty. I know you haven't. And I'm fucking obsessed with the 10-minute version of All Too Well. Hmm. Hmm. It's so fucking good. So you're saying you want to come into my club? (laughs) I listen to it multiple times a day. Hell yeah. It's and that's so a commitment. Good. I mean, a 10 minute song multiple times a day oh, is so good. I'm really putting some time aside. So good. Um, answer to the question hell yes. <laughs> oh my gosh, this is such a brandy question. Brianna wants to know favorite winter candle. Ooh. I know what you're mm. going to say. You do? I feel like I know. What are you going to say? What am I going to say? Are you going to say sweater weather? Oh, yeah. I love sweater weather. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. We're currently in our home. Mm-hmm. We're burning winter white woods. Which <laughs> mm-hmm. smells amazing. Next in the lineup, mm-hmm. I have fresh balsam ready to go. I love that. Yeah. I mean... You give me any, really, any dark green Christmas candle, mm-hmm. I'm going to fucking yeah. love it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I love a fucking Christmas candle. <laughs> I know. They're so much better also, than all the other seasons I of candles. I also just received cinnamon and clove bud, which smells so fucking good. Okay, I bet that is amazing. Yeah, I love the smell of cloves. Do you like the smell of cloves? Hell yeah. 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 It's like spicy. Because mm-hmm. <sighs> I don't like them too sweet. Yeah, I don't like the sweet ones. Mm-hmm. Mm-mm. No. Uh, sugar cookie, get the fuck out of here. Yeah. Oh, see, I will do a sugar cookie, no, but I don't. No, get the fuck out of here. <laughs> it's like the one I'll kind of do, but you know. Not interested. My problem is if I smell sugar cookies, then I'm like, okay, I need to eat a sugar cookie. where are the sugar cookies? <laughs> yes. Hand over the sugar cookies. Uh. 
Cool Whip Forever wants to know, what celebrity would you want to meet? And Brandy, why is it Lance Bass? It is 100% Lance Bass. And I would, I think I would just like, poof, cease to exist when I met Lance Bass. (laughs) You've you've reached the end of life. (laughs) What if he gave you a hug? (gasps) I know, I know. You would just die. It, that would be it. That'd yeah. Be it. Be I it. have loved Lance Bass. Yeah. Since I was 11 years old. Your relationship with Lance Bass <laughs> is longer than any other man. It is. <laughs> it is. <laughs> it's one-sided, but don't worry don't about worry it. Don't worry about it. <laughs> My relationship with Lance Bass is the same length as my relationship with you. No, I was here before Lance Bass. Brandy, yeah, how we, I dare guess we've you? been friends since we were 10. Yeah, suck on that, okay, Lance. Sorry. <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Freckle says, very, very important, not a question, but will you please yell happy birthday to little bitch uncle? She's 30 next week. <laughs> yes, yes, happy birthday, little bitch uncle. <laughs> Uh, Gadriel asks, any new Christmas songs catch your ear this year? Okay, not, no, not for me because I know all the Christmas songs. I'm oh. very well versed in mm. every Christmas song. Not to brag. But David and I were in the car and we were listening to Christmas music and this terrible Christmas song came on. Okay. It's a Neil Diamond Christmas song and it's like a very cherry very merry christmas uh-huh and it's horrible and so i i hate it i love neil diamond uh-huh the song is terrible and so it's just on and like i've heard it a million times and finally david's like what the hell is this <laughs> he's like is this a new song i was like no it's been out for a while but it's terrible yeah i mean some christmas songs they slip under the radar yeah because you can only have so many good ones. That's right. Okay, here's one. Kate Tate wants to know, what is the one present you never got for Christmas you always wanted? Oh, Walkie-talkies. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you and your sisters wanted walkie-talkies. Yeah. We wanted walkie-talkies so fucking bad. We never got a Barbie Jeep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I am realizing now that we are saying these answers aloud, that we have answered this question in Christmas past, but clearly the scars run deep because we have not changed our answers. That's right. We have not. How does it feel now that you and all your sisters have cell phones and, you know, (laughs) not nearly as cool as walkie talkies? (laughs) Do you sometimes say, over? (laughs) 10 4. Mm hmm. Um, should we move on to Supreme yeah, Court inductions? Yeah, let's do Supreme Court inductions. We are continuing to read your names mm-hmm. and your favorite cookies. Mm. Lynn Keith. No bake peanut butter. That's just a jar of peanut butter. <laughs> Nicolette Bourne. Chocolate chip cookies, underbaked and fresh out the oven. <laughs> Brittany Riggins. Still warm white chocolate macadamia cookies. Amanda Ray. Oatmeal scotchies with sea salt on top. Ooh, excuse me. Arizona Keeling. My dad's snickerdoodles. Ashley O. Chocolate chip. Jess. Chocolate chip M&M. Darby Casey. Caramel sea salt chocolate chip. 
Reagan Barton, Ginger Snaps, Madeline Carroll, Double Chocolate Chip, Christy Wen Ucrops, Rainbow Cookies, Courtney Benson Cooey, Soft Warm Molasses Cookies, Ooh, mm. so good, Friny, Chocolate Chip with Brown Butter and Sea Salt. I gotta try this brown butter cookie business. I know, it sounds pretty darn good. It does. Charlotte Borman, Soft Chocolate Chip, Bryant, Hard chocolate <laughs> macadamia nut. <laughs> Amy Bike. Lavender shortbread. So many people are mentioning lavender in their cookies. Am I missing out? Oh, okay, they do this on the ba- Great British Baking Show all the time. Do they? Yes. I think of it as a bath time I thing. agree. All right, I'll take the cookies to the bathtub. <laughs> Desmond Harold Stewart. Chewy molasses cookies. Samantha Long. Snickerdoodle. Crystal Pete. Sugar cookie with frosting and sprinkles. Cassie Bartlett. My snickerdoodles. Welcome Welcome to the Supreme Court. Thank you for all of your support all year long. Oh, yeah. Oh, man. We're wrapping up the year. We are wrapping it up. Thank you for all of your support. This has been an amazing year for the podcast. Oh, it really has. Yeah. It really has. God, you know, since we still have to record a Patreon episode, this doesn't feel like the last one. Mm-hmm. But now I'm like, we got to say stuff I to the know. people. We hope you all have happy holidays and, yeah. you know, get to do amazing things and celebrate however you celebrate. Yeah. And thank you for supporting us. And we'll miss you. Yeah. If you're looking for other ways to support us, please find us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Reddit, Patreon. Please remember to subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen and then head on over to Apple Podcasts. Leave us a five star rating and review. And then be sure to join us next year Ah, when we'll be experts on two whole new topics. Podcast adjourned. And now for a note about our process. I read a bunch of stuff, then regurgitate it all back up in my very limited vocabulary. And I copy and paste from the best sources on the web and sometimes Wikipedia. So we owe a huge thank you to the real experts. I got my info from the video The Case of John Copenhaver by JCS Criminal Psychology on YouTube, an article for ESPN by Jane McManus titled The Tragic Love Story of Christy Mack and MMA Fighter War Machine, as well as Rolling Stone, New York Daily News, The Las Vegas Sun, and more. I got my info from an episode of the podcast, This is Monsters. The Associated Press, Murderpedia, KTVO News, a Murderpedia again, apparently, (laughs) and the court record. (laughs) For a full list of our sources, full list of our sources, full list of our sources, visit lgtcpodcast.com. Any errors are, of course, ours, but please don't take our word for it. Go read their stuff. 